paid good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. is just beginning. William Shatner Take us out. is Captain James T. Kirk. Leonard Nimoy is Mr. Spock. DeForest Kelly is Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy. James Doohan is Lieutenant Commander Montgomery Scott. George Takei is Lieutenant Commander Sulu. Majel Barrett is Dr. Christine Chapel. Walter Koenig is Lieutenant Pavel Chekhov. Michelle Nichols is Lieutenant Commander Uhura. Stephen Collins is Commander Willard Decker. Persis Kambata is Lieutenant Ilya. Gene Roddenberry's production of a Robert Wise film coming this Christmas from Paramount. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. A.J. Black. Hailing frequencies open. Also back in the booth is Mr. Trevor Gumble. Phasers on. Recording. We are kicking off another Sci-Fi July with the first entry in the Star Trek film franchise, Star Trek the motion picture before i spy before masters of the universe and even before the wild wild west it's the earliest television to movie adaptation after a decade without a live action star trek the film reunites the old gang and puts them on a very familiar mission it's a gene roddenberry special where an alien godlike creature wants to terminate human life it's a little bit like the changeling and some of the doomsday machine mixed with the cutting edge 1979 effects and funky 1979 fashions we will be spoiling this film as we go along though i think you can guess that the crew of the enterprise will save the day and the citizens of earth so aj when was the first time you saw star trek the motion picture and what did you think sir back in the the late 80s because that's when i first discovered star trek and it was never my favorite i won't lie it is a film that 
improves as you get older. <laughs> so it is slow Star Trek malaise through this universe. And um, as I become slower and more filled with malaise, the more I love <laughs> the motion picture. So as a child, it was no Wrath of Khan or it was no uh, The Undiscovered Country or The Voyage Home. So I, I wore the VHS of this out the least in the late 80s, to be fair. But yeah, I, have a, I've, I saw it a long, long time ago. In a galaxy far, far away. You are mixing the fandoms already, Mr. White. <laughs> this is dangerous. And Trevor, how about yourself? This wasn't the first Star Trek film I ever saw. That would be The Voyage Home back when I was like seven or eight. My parents rented it. And I didn't really see the first one until like my mid to late 30s. I watched it one day and I remember thinking, this is kind of boring. Not much going on. But but AJ, you're, you're kind of right. As you get older, you kind of see more to appreciate in it. Because as I was watching it last night, I was really looking at it from a different perspective as I did back probably over a decade ago when I first saw it. I really found a lot more to appreciate this viewing. I probably saw this one either on VHS or cable when I was a kid. I remember really liking Star Trek II, Star Trek III, Star Trek IV. I think I saw all of those at the theater. I don't think I saw Star Trek V. And then there was a marathon that was being held at the Star John R here around Detroit where they were showing all five of the first movies and then an extended trailer of the sixth one before the sixth movie came out. So that must have been 1991. So I managed to see Star Trek the motion picture on the big screen. I'm not sure if by that point it was the director's cut or not. I remember the jokes about the revelation of the Enterprise and how long it takes to get around the Enterprise. And I remember somebody joking that, what did they do with the director's cut? Add 20 more minutes of them going around <laughs> the Enterprise. I also remember that everyone was ready to go uh, by the time Star Trek Four was over. And I was like, no, no, I've never seen Star Trek Five. So we all sat and watched Star Trek Five, much to the chagrin of my compatriots. But managed to get to see that on the big screen. Then I was very fortunate. They were doing a special thing with Doug Trumbull here. I want to say down in Milan or might've been in Monroe, uh, either last year or the year before it was right around the time that we were doing our episode on brainstorm. And so it was probably pre pandemic and they showed star Trek, the motion picture on the big screen with Doug Trumbull introducing it. I've spoken to Mr. Trumbull a couple times and I was really just like, okay, cool. We're going to do a Star Trek episode. And I'm going to get Doug Trumbull to talk about, mm, no, unfortunately he passed away. So we do have some interviews later on, folks, and they definitely are worth the price of admission. So stick around for that. But before we even start to talk about the movie, I want to talk a little bit more about just the weird path that it took to get this movie made. You know, like I said, there was no Star Trek live action Star Trek on TV for about 10 years before this thing came out. I want to say that it ended sometime in 1969. There was the animated series where a lot of the actors came back and did voice work, though not everyone. And then they were talking about doing a movie. No, it's going to be a TV series. It's going to be a TV movie. No, it'll be a TV series. No, it's going to be a movie. Okay, yeah, let's make it a movie. Because this was... We talked on the Black Hole episode about how Star Wars just kicked off this whole thing of let's try to get that money that Star Wars had. You just really like money, huh? 
Yeah. Yeah, I guess I do. This falls into that. 1979, you're pretty damn close to 1977. Though I do have to say it's interesting that so much of this revolves around the Voyager program, which I don't think was that old at this point. Uh, I think it was very exciting for people and the whole Voyager record. And I remember all the, the hoopla around that. Of course, I remember Starman and how we see the Voyager going past the camera at the beginning and we get to hear the Rolling Stones and all that. But it was kind of a nice confluence of events that they decided to pick up on the Voyager thing. Though this is very much a mashup of other Star Trek ideas. This is, like I said, a Gene Roddenberry special. He loved having godlike creatures come and judge humans. That was like his thing, baby. Well, he was obsessed with religion. Even though he was a well-known atheist, and he would go on record about that a lot. He was obsessed. He was absolutely... The, the, the original series is full of gods. Everywhere they go is a god. They, I think they see more gods than just aliens <laughs> in that show. <laughs> it's either gods or worlds that have replicated human history, where it's like Romans, gangsters, all that kind of thing. Nazis. Nazis, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, yeah, he was totally obsessed. So it completely makes sense that he would, for this film, want to take because it was taken from a script he wrote called the god thing which was when they were trying to figure out it was there were loads of different possibilities for a star trek movie particularly throughout the 70s and the his was the god thing which was essentially originally a really it sounded like a really heavy take on the idea of of a god returning to pass a level of judgment on humanity. And then a lot of people at Paramount and everyone around anywhere, well, you can't make that, G. <laughs> like, you got to walk this down, man. Like, so they blended it with a few different ideas, but it, it was, yeah, it, it makes complete sense. This is what he was obsessed with right at the heart of Star Trek, this idea of, of we're not going out, out into space to, in some ways, discover aliens and explore the universe. We're going out there to prove that God is alien, essentially, or God is a machine, particularly, and God and artificial intelligence are one. And he never, ever got away from that completely throughout all of his life. I rewatched the episodes, The Changeling and The Doomsday Machine last night. Doomsday Machine lends a little bit to it. This whole thing of a immense ship that is coming and it smashes planets rubble. But then there's the character of Decker. So I think that's one reason why I kind of glommed onto this because Decker uh, would, of course, become Riker. Uh, there's a lot of the TV show roots in this that will stick around and uh, well, I said this about George Lucas, and I'll say the same thing about Gene Roddenberry. He didn't like to let ideas die. Kind of that same thing that you're talking about as far as, you know, I'm going to keep recycling this thing. We're going to explore things in different ways. Same thing here. It's like, okay, we're going to put a first officer on here to give Kirk a different counterpoint. We're going to put, you know, someone who has immense empathy on there, which eventually becomes Spock role, but it's basically Deanna Troy. Uh, at one point when the probe comes back, the Ilya probe comes back, she was like, call me Tasha. And I'm like, okay, well, there's Tasha Yar. All right. So just this whole thing of, I have these ideas. We're going to use them even when it comes to like, uh, we're going to have a full blooded Vulcan on here, maybe in place of Mr. Spock. Well, that becomes data. And of course, the first episode of Star Trek, the next generation is 
cue a godlike being judging John Luke Picard and the rest of the Enterprise. So it's like, okay. Yeah, when that next generation started, I was just like, fuck this show. I, <laughs> I mean, it took really until Gene's influence was really weakened until that show became good. So I like aspects of this movie, but there are a lot of things where I'm like, wow. This is really just mired in that Roddenberry claptrap. But I do have to say that the Changeling episode is really where so much of this comes from. This whole nomad space probe that comes back will destroy biological infestations. It's looking for the creator and this whole thing of thinking that Kirk is the creator and Kirk having to do his whole logic thing on Nomad. I'm surprised at one point Scotty and Spock come into the room when Kirk is doing his tete-a-tete versus Nomad improving the uh, the logic flaw in Nomad's programming. I was waiting for them to start dancing and being illogical and then having Nomad being like, does not compute, does not compute. You say you are lying, but if everything you say is a lie, then you are telling the truth. But you cannot tell the truth because everything you say is a lie, but you lie, you tell the truth, but you cannot for you lie. Illogical, illogical. Please explain. You are human. The similarities are really striking between the two. It's really interesting you rattling through all the things there as well about how so much of the ideas that formed the motion picture went into later Star Trek as well. Because you mentioned that there was a, there was a TV show because it was originally going to be called Phase Two, and that was going to be a new five year mission in theory around seventy six, seventy seven. After the original movie that they planned, or one of the movies they planned called Planet of the Titans, which sounded amazing. It was basically the Enterprise crew go back to ancient. Greece and or, or ancient Earth and help like them find fire and all this kind of stuff. It sounded nuts, but it sort of would have been excellent um, in its own way. Phase two had a lot of the plots and characters that went into TNG. You know, it had a lot of the literal scripts were essentially adapted from that show and later popped up in in the next generation. There really is a through line from the middle of the seventies all the way through to the early 90s in many ways with Star Trek, even though it's they seem like two really different eras. And then, like you say, you can connect it all the way back to the 60s, given the Changeling and given the Doomsday Machine and all of these episodes that essentially had the core V'ger idea idea in many ways, this thing Roddenberry was obsessed with. So maybe Star Trek is just this story <laughs> for 25 years, <laughs> deep down. Shatner tried to do the same kind of story in the fifth one, Oh yeah. yeah. With uh, an alien, there's that famous line in the fifth one, what does God want with a starship? And in the fifth one, they go against quote unquote God. And it turns out, of course, it's an alien, not God. Shatner is trying to do Roddenberry, but it's just not working as, as much as, as Roddenberry did it. Roddenberry, as much of an atheist as he was, never talked down to the ones who were people who were religious. He wasn't like, there's no God. There's only like aliens and, you know, universe and stuff like that. It was more philosophical. You know, he wasn't like doing a whole Richard Dawkins kind of thing. He seemed like he was he was kind of more open to what's out there in in terms of creation. Well, even Star Trek Four: the voyage home starts with this 
probe coming up from outer space and wanting to speak to something on Earth that isn't there anymore. It's totally V'ger coming back and being like, no, I want to speak to the creator, so let me do it. Well, I am your creator. You are the creator. I created you? You are the creator. But I admit I am imperfect. How could I have created such a perfect thing as you? Answer unknown. I shall analyze. Analysis complete. Insufficient data to resolve problem. But my programming is whole. My purpose remains. I am nomad. I am perfect. That which is imperfect must be sterilized. I shall return to launch point Earth. I shall sterilize. You must sterilize in case of error. Error is inconsistent with my prime function. Sterilization is correction. I am the Kirk, the creator. You are the creator. You're wrong. Jackson Roy Kirk, your creator, is dead. You have mistaken me for him. You are in error. You did not discover your mistake. You've made two errors. You are flawed and imperfect. And you have not corrected by sterilization. You've made three errors. Error, 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 examine. You are flawed and imperfect. Execute your prime function. I shall analyze error. Analyze error. You mentioned the planet of the titans do i remember right was phil kaufman involved in that one he was meant to direct that and he was heavily involved and ralph mcquarrie who was a great obviously visual designer you know he designed ships and he designed a really dynamic rejigged enterprise for that which then got lost for years until it was actually incorporated into a lot of the pre-conceptual art for the Star Trek Discovery series that came out in 2017. Yeah, they used quite a bit of Macquarie's stuff or they, as a basis for that. And if you if you look at the Discovery and then you look at some of his drawings, you can see a lot of the connectives. That didn't completely go away. But yeah, Philip, Philip Kaufman's Planet of the Titans, I think, is the great lost Star Trek movie from the 1970s. I think that would have been fascinating. It would have been commercially terrible, <laughs> I think. But I think, wow, what a movie that could have been. Well, it's funny because I know there was also a story that also involved time travel, which was something to do with the Enterprise going back and the JFK assassination. Yes. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I talked this. a little bit about this on the Star Trek two episode that we did forever ago. I don't know why we did two and then we're doing <laughs> one now, but I have to say, have you ever read something in a book that is factually inaccurate and you just question the rest of the book? Because I was reading Star Trek, the motion picture, the art and visual effects by Jeff Bond. And in there, they're like, oh, yeah, and they were going to go back. And it had something to do with Robert Kennedy. And I was like, no, not Robert. Uh, it's John. So uh, the rest of this book is invalid. Illogical. Illogical. And I just became like the fanboy, like going crazy at the comic book counter. How wrong do you have to be? It's the most obvious one of the most well-known assassinations in human history, and you fuck up the first name. They could have been, you know, like Sirhan Sirhan. It sounds like a Vulcan name to me. I don't know. There's a few sci-fi programs when it came to time travel that was obsessed with the JFK assassination. Yeah, yeah, Quantum Leap. Uh, you had Red Dwarf. So I don't know what it was about the assassination, especially that time travel, you know, time travel and JFK assassination. There was a Twilight Zone from 85, 86 that was also the same thing, of Profiles in Silver. 
as little as I know about the show, I do know that it was it was very much about humanity and how to make us as a better race. And I do think a theory about stopping the JFK assassination would fit into that well, because he was known as, you know, a very progressive president. And plus, Star Trek was like a couple years after the assassination. Three. It was kind of exploring that new frontier that really was the promise of Kennedy, the whole we will put a man on the moon. This is happening before we put a man on the moon, but really is kind of cashing in on that promise of what Kennedy was pointing us towards, giving us a big ideal. And this show also follows in the big ideal. So much so that even like Martin Luther King was a huge fan of it. He was the reason that Nichelle Nichols even stayed on the show because she was thinking of quitting. But Martin Luther King, was it called her or sent her a letter saying, please don't, you know, leave the show. You are a beacon, I guess you could say, for hope for African-Americans. Nichelle Nichols took up the mantle of that and was doing tours. I think before Star Trek, the motion picture shot, she was going around to different places and to colleges and high schools and things and really encouraging young women, young black women to stick with things and to become scientists and really pushed a lot of people like down that direction that they might not have thought of before because yeah she was such a a symbol which was fantastic kirk is very clearly a kennedy captain you know he's modeled hugely off off, off kennedy the idea of a story that would have explored that intersection would have been fascinating if that in a way feels more like a kind of story they could have done on phase two because they were they were going to do a story about Pearl Harbor. They were going to go back and Kurt would have, it would have been in many ways a reprise of probably the most famous uh, original series episode, City on the Edge of Forever, where they go back to pre-Nazi Germany and they save the life of a character played by Joan Collins called Edith Keeler, who ended up, basically, if she lives, America doesn't enter the war and the Nazis win. So it becomes a real conundrum that Kirk falls in love with Edith and then he has to let her die by the end because otherwise the whole of history's changed. There's no Starfleet, there's no the Federation, etc. So it would have been a similar thing with Pearl Harbor. So they they loved looking at these intersections in history that led in many ways to the kind of future that Starfleet and Star Trek represented, which is a very American future, really. You know, the Federation being, you know, in some ways a proxy of the United Nations, but more so a proxy of a very progressive leading United States of America as it was in the in the mid 60s and through the 80s and the 90s as much as Reagan's era sort of changes the dynamic of Star Trek in some ways but it's 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 really fascinating because i think they love those kind of stories so this movie it could have been one of two things it could have been a big budget version of that kind of intersection story or they go the other way which is what they did and they make something very philosophical. And I think that's probably why people were maybe slightly turned off it at the time. And then subsequently, although it ebbs and flows the reputation of this film, it seems to go in cycles. <laughs> right now, it's in a good cycle, I think. And it, for years, it wasn't. And a lot of people say it's boring, it's slow. And I understand that. But at the same time, I think it's intentionally philosophical in a way that a lot of the sequels, as much as I love them and prefer them for the most part, aren't. They go more down that in a way, almost pulp storytelling style, which is what that JFK assassination film would have been in many ways, I guess. 
Well, now I have to look and see if any of the writers that wrote The Final Countdown had been working on Phase 2, or if it's just one of those ideas of, like, a ship appears and is able to prevent Pearl Harbor. Because it's been a while since I've seen The Final Countdown from, I think, 1980. Kirk Douglas, that one, isn't it? Right, yeah, yeah. It's like the USS Nimitz, though it would have been hilarious if it was the USS Enterprise shows up and prevents Pearl Harbor. Excuse me, sir. Can you direct me to the naval base in Alameda? It's where they keep the nuclear vessels. Nuclear vessels. The only reason I remember it's the Nimitz is because that's uh, that's the ship my dad was stationed on. Oh, that's cool. He was on the Nimitz back when it was stationed in Oak Harbor. You mentioned like Star Wars, it coming out after Star Wars. I mean, this is definitely, I mean, of course, it's obvious. It's more kind of more inspired by 2001 than by Star Wars, because this one's very less action heavy, adventure heavy than than Star Wars. And you're right, it is very much more philosophical. I think maybe it was trying to balance the two, the visuals of like Star Wars in 2001, but also the philosophy of 2001. I'd say 75% 2001, 25% Star Wars inspired. To me, it feels very black hole yes especially when it comes to the philosophy of what's in the hole is very much what's in the cloud it wasn't black hole was like a year later wasn't it black hole and star trek the motion picture i didn't realize how much i had read comic books back in the late 70s but i remember the ads for those movies being every place especially star trek the motion picture Mm -hmm. every back cover of comic books was being taken up by an ad for you know the human journey begins kind of thing i mean for a film that was advertised to like teens and kids and stuff i don't really see appealing to that age group other than like visually it's very well known as being like the first film to have a happy meal promotion for you parents who don't speak klingonese he's saying people of earth unite and bring your kids to mcdonald's for a star trek meal that's a regular hamburger fries soft drink a mcdonald and cookie sampler and a star trek prize Oh, yes, five different boxes based on Star Trek, the motion picture, action scenes, jokes, games. He says, take it from a father who knows. His kids love him. McDonald's Star Trek meal available for your kids now. Films this cerebral probably usually don't have toys associated with them. You're totally right in that it was quite new in terms of merchandising. And there is a, a, a generational gap in some ways already. There's 10 years between the original series in this movie. But Star Trek was massively successful in the 70s. It was more successful after it was cancelled, bizarrely, because of syndication. And more people watched the show, and it, and it was constantly in danger of being cancelled. It was almost cancelled after two seasons. It then got a reprieve because of a massive fan-writing letter campaign to the network that actually worked in that case, and then it got a... And, you know, the the original series, it gets worse each year. <laughs> you know, the first season is arguably the best. And by the end of season three, it it's it kind of, you know, a mercy in a way to let it go. But it became so popular, and conventions were created essentially around Star Trek. They were the, It was the first major franchise to actually birth what we know to be the convention. So by the time the late 70s came around, there was a huge swell of interest in this kind of movie. And in fact, I think the press conference announcing it was the biggest one since the Ten Commandments for that network. And it's like, it was huge. So in a way, I think, even though the the, the generation that would have watched Star Trek 
at an impressionable age were now very much adult, maybe they would have got some of their kids or their younger siblings or you know other people's children into watching the reruns of Star Trek. So the the expectation for the motion picture was 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 massive. I think at the time, not maybe Star Wars levels of massive that in subsequently, but it was big for that in terms of that fan base. Yeah, because people that didn't know science fiction ended up seeing Star Wars. And of course, then you got your kids, you got the grandkids, you got the the grandparents. Everybody was seeing that one. Speaking of Pearl Harbor, Star Trek The Motion Picture opens 7 December 1979. The Black Hole opens three weeks later, 21 December, or sorry, two weeks, really. There's only 14 days between these. So it so very quick. Uh, I actually asked John Polville about the whole JFK thing because I had just read about the Robert Kennedy thing. So let's go ahead and we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from author Alan Dean Foster. And after that, we'll hear from associate producer John Polville. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. Welcome to the first interview portion of the show. First up, we are going to hear from the man who gave us the story for Star Trek The Motion Picture, Mr. Alan Dean Foster. I have to tell you, I've been a big fan of yours for a long darn time, and I've always been curious, how did you get your start? I was taking a lot of film courses at UCLA. I was going to be a lawyer, and then I discovered the film courses and get credit for watching movies, taking film history courses. Greatest racket in university education. You go in, you take something like History of American Film, 1920-1930, professor talks for 15 minutes, you watch Buster Keaton for three and a half hours, four units, same as four units of physics. So I took a lot of film history courses, I took some writing courses because I'd always been a facile writer, it had always been easy for me. And while I was doing that, I thought, well, why don't you try some prose while you're writing these TV scripts and film scripts for your degree? This was after I got into the graduate film program. And I wrote about a dozen short stories, none of which sold. But in that time, I also discovered H.P. Lovecraft, devoured everything I could by Lovecraft. And I saw that a lot of writers worked in Lovecraft's universe. And I thought, well, that would be a fun thing to try just for fun. I wrote this long Lovecraftian style letter, set at UCLA, because that's what I knew, sent it off to August Derelith, thought he might enjoy it might give him a giggle. Months passed, and I get this letter back from Derelith saying, Dear Mr. Foster, liked your story very much, would like to publish it in the next issue of my semi-annual magazine, The Arkham Collector. So I'm running around frantically looking among all these other manuscripts that hadn't sold and found the letter. And that's what he published as a story. That was my first professional sale. First publication was actually an analog. John W. Campbell had bought a subsequent story I had written called With Friends Like These, And that came out in June 1971 of Analog. And it came out before the Derelith story because Derelith's magazine only came out twice a year and and Analog was was a monthly. And you started publishing full-length novels pretty darn soon after that. Was it 72? Yes. The Tar and Krang, which was a title Lester Del Rey called the worst title for a science fiction novel he'd ever heard. And uh, Judy Lynn Del Rey, who were the editors at Ballantyne, which had become Del Rey Books published that. Actually, got to back up a little bit. Betty Ballantyne actually bought the book and my second book, but in the interim, she left, she and her husband, Ian, left to do art books at Bantam, most notably the first Frank Frazetta art collections. Then the Delrays came along and took over the program. But The Time Krang was my first published novel. That was 1970, 72, yes. 
When did you first start to do novelizations? Judy Lynn came into the Ballantine program, and as many editors do, found a number of projects that had been left undeveloped by previous editors, in this case, the the Ballantines. Well, someone, I don't think the Ballantines, but someone at Ballantine had bought the rights to do a book version of what turned out to be a really atrocious Italian film called Luana. And because I had a MFA in film from UCLA, figured, well, this guy probably knows you know, his way around a screenplay and we don't have to pay him much anyway because he's a young writer. So they threw the project my way. And of course, being a young writer, I said, sure, I'll do it. Just send me the screenplay. And they came back and said, I forget which editor. Well, we, we don't have a copy of the screenplay, but we'll set, up, we'll set up a private screening of the film for you in Los Angeles, where I was living at the time, still where I'd grown up. So I went to the offices of the producer who had bought the American rights, which was like a third floor walk up off Hollywood Boulevard. That was not a bad, that was not a good sign right at the beginning. And the screening room turned out to be a screen that had been set up in a room with some you know, fold up chairs and was properly projected. Unfortunately, you know, I had, an, I had a pad and a pencil. I was going to make notes like crazy as I watched the film. Unfortunately, the film was all in Italian, of which language I spoke nothing at that time. And I'm staring at this thing, but it didn't really matter because the film was so bad anyway that all of the awfulness of it came through regardless of the language it was being shot in. So I'm looking at this thing and I'm kind of in a daze. It's like I've taken on this project. I'm just kind of getting started at this as a professional. I can't say no. Uh, what do I do with this thing? Well, the producer had hired a young guy whose name I sadly don't remember to do the advertising and PR for the American release of the film. And this guy, this kid, he wasn't much older than me, was a fan. And he had hired Frank Frazetta to do two paintings to promote the film, both of which were used in the film's advertising art. And one of them was going to be on the cover of the book. The other one was going to be on the back cover of the book, much reduced in size. So I'm thinking, what can I do? What can I do? Well, I had grown up, one of the shows I had grown up with was a show called Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, which was a 1950s black and white TV series starring a very statuesque gal named Irish McCalla. That was my idea of a female Tarzan, which is what Luana was about. So I had that in the back of my mind, and I had Frazetta in the front of my mind, neither of which had anything to do with the film or the very diminutive Vietnamese gal who actually played the title character, Luana. And I thought, there's the basis for female Tarzan film. So I essentially novelized the cover, which means I wrote an original female Tarzan novel that very lightly followed the outlines of the film. That's why the book is dedicated to Frazetta, who unfortunately I never got a chance to meet. Many years later, as a postscript to this story, we moved to Prescott, Arizona. And our second year there, I'm walking down a street called Cortez, which was basically all antique stores at the time, still is to a certain extent. And here comes, lo and behold, this elderly, but still very attractive, statuesque blonde, and it's Irish McCullough. And I was so stunned, and now as a grown man, seeing my childhood, well, however you want to define it, one of those gals who sparks puberty in young males coming towards me. She was unmistakable. I absolutely had no idea what to say. Walked past her, wasn't even sure what I'd seen, went into the nearest antique store and said, is that Irish McCalla? And he said, oh yeah, she's a member of the Western Artists of America. He showed me some of her paintings, mostly of Navajo and Hopi children, which were very good. 
And that was my one very brief and unfortunately a nonverbal encounter with Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. And that's the story behind Luana. I don't imagine that you approach every novelization that way, writing to the cover and writing to Sheena. What is your typical process if you have one? Uh, I do. And yes, that was the only time I had to do that. Thank goodness. I do get a copy of the screenplay from the studio. And if I'm lucky, I'll get some pre-production drawings. That's what happened with Star Wars. I got about a dozen copies of Ralph McQuarrie's work. And so I'll put that, I'll look at that. If I get some photos from the set, uh, that's very helpful because it lets me be accurate in the description of things like costumes, weapons, vehicles, backgrounds, what the characters actually look like, which is nice to put in a novelization. And if fans appreciate that kind of accuracy, I would too. And I'll have the screenplay off to one side. And previously, in the early days, my typewriter, nowadays, of course, a computer. And I'll look from the screenplay back to what I'm working on. And after a few of these worked out to where I knew that I needed to get, to get say, an 80,000, 75, 80,000 word novel, I needed to get three pages generally of prose from one page of screenplay. Now, if you have a 120-page screenplay, which is fairly average, particularly for these types of films, you're going to get a 360-page manuscript, which will work out to the number of words you actually need. That may sound very mechanical and non-aesthetic, but it doesn't matter what I'm writing as long as I meet that word limit. You can't, if you're going to do novelizations, turn in a 45,000-word manuscript. That's just not going to cut it as a commercial book release. So I found that. I figured that out fairly early on. And from that point on, it was, it was fairly simple to make the word limit. If, for example, I was writing something that didn't have a lot of description in the screenplay, and I ended up, despite my best efforts, getting one page of manuscript out of one page of screenplay, then I knew I had to make that up as quickly as possible further down the line. The next page, I might have to get five pages of manuscript. And of course, depending on what's being shot, what's in the screenplay, you'll get a lot more description, or you might have something like uh, Platoon A overran enemies platoon B, and that's the sole amount of description in the screenplay. At the same time that there's nothing there, that gives me as the writer a lot of leeway to invent material. So I do hand-to-hand combat and what kind of weapons are being used. And, you know, this person is kneeling over this dying character over here. That's how you do it. But it all has to be within the framework of the, the original screenplay. You can't go off on individual tangents that really, in the final analysis, have nothing whatsoever to do with the movie that's being made. When did you first start working with Star Trek? Uh, there were two instances, actually. The first most obvious incident, the one the most people know, is when Judy Lynn, who is a very sharp gal, had discovered a gap in the contract that Bantam Books had with Paramount Pictures regarding Star Trek. Supposedly, this contract said that Bantam Books had the rights to do any adaptations any literary adaptations of Star Trek throughout the universe forever. And then it got very specific, as these documents do, as to what that included. Well, apparently it didn't include animated film. And Judy Lynn or somebody close to Judy Lynn found that and immediately bought those rights, acquired those rights. She then came to me. I had done the Luana novelization and said, look, we have the rights to, I think it was 18 episodes eventually. If not, I'm sure some fan will correct me. Can you turn these into books? And of course, I said, sure. But I had seen the animated series, some of the episodes anyway. I said, the only caveat I have 
I have to say is I can't get a full length novel out of a 20 minute cartoon script. She said, do whatever you want. So I said, okay. So I thought about it. And what I thought I could do was get a 25,000 word novella out of each, you know, a reasonable story out of each screenplay, each teleplay, excuse me. So there would be three per book. And I would include a little original bridging material to try and at least, at least give the story some continuity throughout the book, even though the actual animated stories bore no relationship to each other. So I did that for six books. And then Judy Lynn called one day and said, look, you have to get a full book out of each remaining teleplay. There were four teleplays remaining. I said, Judy, I can't do that. If I could have done that, I would have done it in the first place. She said, I don't care. I know you can do it. Just do it. This is who Judy Lynn was. If you knew Judy Lynn, who was a little person, she had a big voice and a big personality. So I'm thinking, what can I do? Well, the only thing I figured out I could do was the same thing I had been doing, which was get maybe 25,000 words out of one teleplay and then do the remaining 50, 55,000 words as original material. So the last four Star Trek logs, the last two thirds of each book is entirely original. And I got to write my own Star Trek. Now, I said there were two things. There was a company called Peter Pan Records, and they did talking records for children. And they had, they had acquired the rights to do some Star Trek. And I was contacted and said, would you write some short, consider them like radio plays, Star Trek stories for us? And I ended up doing, I think, seven. There were two records that were all my material, three stories on each one. And then another one, there was a story by Neil Adams. But I did seven of these. I think I got $500 for each one, no royalties. I got to write Star Trek dialogue that would actually be spoken. So those were the two things, and collectors know about these. They were done as 33 and third RPM records. Uh, everybody seems to have a turntable. Again, what goes around comes around, no pun intended, uh, for playing these. So people who found them can play them. And I thought it worked out pretty good because they did sound effects and music. And other than actually being filmed, they were little Star Trek TV episodes. So there were those two things that came along almost simultaneously. And that's how I got started with Star Trek. Were you a big fan of the TV show? Yes, it was actual science fiction. I can't say I saw every episode, but it was real science fiction. And there was nothing like it on television. It was science fiction set out in the galaxy. It wasn't all taking place on Mars or Venus or Jupiter. Or It was real science fiction. And for those of us who had grown up reading these huge collections by people like Groff Conklin and Derleth, that were basically compilations of the best stories from all the Digest and Pulp magazines. This was our foundation for science fiction. And here were stories like that with better science and sometimes, oftentimes, better writing on television. And yes, the sets were cheap. And yes, uh, the special effects were cheap. But you have that suspension of disbelief that you have when you read and watch science fiction, which allows you to overcome such things. And I was just thrilled as a fan of science fiction to see a starship and to see something like phasers and communicators and all of the paraphernalia of real science fiction. It wasn't fantasy. Uh, there were at least attempts to explain the science. So, yes, I did enjoy the show very much. That, but I had grown up with, that came after Outer Limits, which I, as a kid, did not miss an episode, of course, because it was a monster of the week, basically. But a lot of it was science fiction and Twilight Zone, which was my gold standard for filmed writing science fiction. 
uh, through, in fact, through Twilight Zone, I discovered writers I never would have heard of otherwise, like Richard Matheson. You know, before that, there was Rocky Jones Space Ranger and Space Patrol, which I remember watching on our black and white Emerson TV in New York when I was five years old. How did you end up getting story credit on Star Trek The Motion Picture? The idea was to revive the TV series. And this went back and forth for years at Paramount. And it alternated between, do we revive the TV series? Do we make a movie based on the show? And they went back and forth and back and forth. And there were a lot of projects discussed and dropped. The apocryphal story is that after Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out, a young daughter of Charles Bluthorn, who was the CEO of Gulf and Western, the mega corporation that owned, among other things, Paramount Pictures, went to him and said, Daddy, why can't we have a Star Trek movie? I don't know if that's true. But the other reason, obviously, was money. Star Wars made a lot of money and Close Encounters made money. And suddenly everybody is looking around for big budget science fiction project. Disney had tried and missed the mark with the black hole or later did. But that was the idea. So suddenly everybody at Paramount and Norway Productions, which was Roddenberry's production company, are running around frantically because the idea had been to revive the TV series at that point, looking for something to throw at the Paramount Brass as the basis for a movie. Now, a number of writers had already been brought in to submit treatments, outlines, basically, for proposed hour-long episodes for a revived TV series. I was one of them, uh, obviously because of my involvement with the Star Trek logs and records. They knew that I knew the Star Trek universe. So I was brought in. I submitted three treatments, one of which was based on a two-page outline that Roddenberry gave me called Robots Return. He handed it to me and said, while you're doing the original stuff, see if you can make something out of this. So that was one of the treatments I turned in, was a greatly expanded, obviously, a treatment version based on that outline. They then decided, well, let's open the new TV series with a two-hour original movie for TV, which was fairly common at that time. And my story was picked as one that could possibly carry two hours instead of one. I then expanded it to do that. Now everybody's running around saying, let's get something to Paramount so we can get a budget submitted, so we can get started on this before they change their minds again. And here was my treatment. I don't know this. Here was my treatment sitting there, already designed to carry two hours. It was presented apparently at a meeting. Michael Eisner, who was then the head of Paramount, held it up and said, this is our movie. I get this all secondhand because I'm not present for any of this, of course. And off they went to do Star Trek, the motion picture, at which point I became an instant non-person because this is the way Hollywood works. Most of it anyway. I had no pull. I was a young writer. I didn't know people in the industry. I didn't have any favors to call in. I didn't go to the right parties and I didn't glad hand and kiss ass. That treatment became the basis for the movie. I ended up getting sole story credit on the movie, which I very easily could have proved Writers Guild arbitration. I wrote 99% of it, but we didn't have to go to arbitration. It was not a pleasant period in my life. And if you read in the available materials how the film came to be, <clears throat> screenplay was settled upon, probably just as well for my sanity and good nature that I wasn't involved. And in fact, we were living in Big Bear Lake, which is a town up in the mountains outside of Los Angeles at the time. And my wife, Joanne, who's from a small town in West Texas called Moran, did not like Los Angeles, was not enamored of the motion picture business, looked at me one day because uh, I'm walking around in a blue funk for reasons I don't need to go into, and said, you sure you want to live here to be near these people? And I thought about it, and I said, you know what? 
let's go find some place we both love and I'll write my books and nobody will bother me. If anything happens with this industry, fine. If not, that's fine too. And we ended up in Prescott, Arizona, and that was 42 years ago. The name of your treatment, was that in thy image? Yes, that was my title. That was the title I put on the story treatment. Were you even invited to the premiere? Yeah, we were invited. Paramount, you know, invited us to go to the premiere at the Smithsonian. They were going to send limos for us, you know, tickets and hotel and the whole bit. What had happened subsequent to my treatment being chosen to be the basis for the film and my becoming, as I said, an instant non-person, as far as certain people were concerned, I decided not to go. I discussed it, discussed it with my wife. And I said, you know, do you want to go? And she said, it's up to you. And I said, I don't think I should go because even though I had had, let's call it disagreements with some people involved, there were a lot of other people I hadn't even met who had put over a year of their life's work into this film. And I did not want to be in a situation where I might cause them distress or embarrassment at a moment that should be a happy one for them. So we didn't go. Very simple. We didn't go. I've been to other movie premieres. I've been on a red carpet. That's, that's a good thing for actors, I think. But if you're a writer, that kind of exposure does nothing for you. And uh, it just, there were, there were reasons for me not to go and very few reasons for me to go. I didn't see that I was going to add anything to the premiere. You know, <laughs> you know how Hollywood interviews go. Who are you? What did you do involved with the film? Next. And to fly to Washington and go through all that for that, just, it just didn't interest me. Mr. Foster, thank you so much for your time. This was such a pleasure talking with you. I'm very shy and I have a hard time talking. You can probably tell that. All right. Up next, we're going to hear from the associate producer of Star Trek, the motion picture, Mr. John Polville. I want to know more about you and especially the early days of your career. How did you even get involved with screenwriting? How did you decide that's what you wanted to do? I wanted to direct. Everybody wants to direct, right? I wanted to direct. I went to UCLA film school. I was always an arrogant prick. So when I was uh, doing film project one, which is, I don't know if you know the sort of the requirements at UCLA, you were thrown immediately into the fire. You had to direct a, it was called Film Project One. Film Project One was, at that time, there was no sync sound for it. It wasn't video. It was Super 8 millimeter. And all my directing had been, and as an undergraduate, all my directing had been on stage. And I could not conceive of doing anything without sound, without dialogue. So I came up with an idea that would allow me to have dialogue without sync sound. And it was, uh, the idea was that the video was going to be shot from the point of view of somebody who was sitting dead drunk in a chair at a party, and he couldn't lift his head up over people's shoulders. So what was going on in front of him comprised the story. It was a moronic idea because it locked my camera in one position, but I knew nothing about film at the time. So my graduate advisor and everybody I talked to said, you're making a big mistake. And I said, well, I'm going to do it anyhow. <laughs> 
So I did it anyhow. I screwed it up miserably. My seven-minute script came down, wound up getting cut down to two and a half, completely incomprehensible. They gave me a very generous C-minus on it, and I did not get into the director's program. However, at the same time, I was had to uh, write a short film, write a script. So went around the room. Everybody told me what your you know what you want to write about, and I said, "Well, I want to write a script about this guy who isn't what he appears to be." And he kind of rubs his hands together. We get one of these every every quarter. We get one of these. You can't write a script about someone who's not what they appear to be. There's nothing harder to do than writing a script about somebody who's not what he appears to be. Film is a graphic medium. What you see is what you get. That's how it works. Think of something else. Same thing. Oh, I'm going to do it anyhow. But the difference was I was writing about someone I knew from from my undergraduate days when I was taking an acting class. And this guy was the most annoying son of a bitch you ever wanted to meet. But for one reason or another, he chose me. He wanted me as his partner, his scene partner and stuff, and pretty much forced me to get to know him. And he was nothing like what he appeared to be. And I had all the ways in which he differed. It was visual and it was real. And at the, I turned in my screenplay, it was about 35 pages or so, and Super apologized to me in front of the whole class. He said, one of the best screenplays he'd ever read from a student and gave me an A. And UCLA said, well, if you want to stay here, if you're now a writer. What year was this? 1970. 69 or 70. I'm not sure when, but I finished in 70. So what do you do after you graduate? I went around to bulletin boards around the school and looked for stuff. A friend of mine uh, who was also in the film program saw a notice up on a bulletin board, an index card up on a bulletin board of somebody looking for a writer who had been stage played producer. So he gave the information. It was Ron Chusette. So I went to Ron Chusette's mother's apartment where he was living. The floor was littered. You couldn't walk in the living room because he had scripts and notes and pages everywhere across the floor. He was a wild man, but he wanted me to adapt Robert Sheckley's short story, A Ticket to Trinai. I don't know if you, you know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love, love Sheckley. I got him to pay me, which was absolutely miraculous, the whopping sum of $500. (laughs) But he paid me for it, and I wrote a pretty good screenplay for it. He sent it to Woody Allen. Uh, Woody Allen came back and said, well, if you want to wait for me, I'll really consider it. Right now, I have an obligation. I have to come up with a, I have a screenplay that I have to write. I'm obligated was it UA? I guess it was UA that he was working with at the time. He wrote Sleepers and took a bunch of stuff from my screenplay and put it in Sleepers. The Jewish Taylor robot in Sleepers was mine, son of a bitch. <laughs> Never got done in any case, and now it's it's dated. My wife still loves it. My wife thinks 
we, I should rewrite it and, and continue trying to do it. Chusette said I could have it, but Sheckley's estate never said I could have it. How did you get involved with Gene Roddenberry? And were you a Star Trek fan before you met him? I was a Star Trek fan, original series, you know, and I had written, I now had this, this science fiction comedy as a writing sample. While I was still in school, I had done so. I was on the improvisational troupe for, uh, for the KCET auction. It was called the Suicide Squad, and they were supposed to improvise and do crazy things like laughing kind of stuff around various auction items. And the guy who was in charge of the Suicide Squad was David Gerald. So I gave David something I had written, I don't remember what, and said, you know, would you take a look at this and read it? And he said, so he graciously read it and he said, yeah, you know, you could you could be a writer someday. Roddenberry was doing uh, not Planet of Genesis 2 and he was doing Quester. And so I figured, well, I have a science fiction comedy screenplay and uh, David Gerald said I could write someday. I called Roddenberry's office. I told his assistant at the time it was Ralph Nevada, not Susan Sackett. Susan, I never would have gotten past Susan Sackett. <laughs> but I told Nevada that David Gerald had suggested I call. And uh, so Nevada read my sample script and he liked it. And uh, so he suggested to Gene that Gene should read it. Yeah, good luck getting Gene to read anything. But what he did was, you know, he foolishly said, you know, you can call me and remind me. And I would always say, you know, can I call you in like three weeks or something? This went on for a year. He never read it. <laughs> but he did at some point give it to DC Fantana. And DC read it and she liked it. And she said that, you know, it, it was reminiscent of it was reminiscent of Harlan Ellison. If I could write on budget, that it was worth giving me a shot. So I got to pitch. By that time, Genesis 2 was gone and Quester was still happening. So I got to pitch for Quester. So I got to pitch to Quester and I pitched to Larry Alexander, who was the story editor for Quester. And I don't remember what the hell I pitched, but Larry liked it. And, and he passed it along to Mark Rhodes who was the producer on it. Just as I was about to get the assignment, Quester went away. By that time, had some interactions with Gene and whatnot, and uh, when he let me know that I wasn't going to be getting an episode, he invited me. He said, if you want to, I'm now going to be writing a novel, and I'm going to need some help with the research of it. You want to be my research assistant on the novel? I said, sure, I'll do that. So uh, he was no longer at a studio. So I would go up to his house several times a week. We'd sit around, we'd get stoned, and we'd talk. And it was my best time with Gene by far. He wasn't trying to prove anything. It was just the two of us stoned on our asses, talking about the future, talking about what we believed in. He did not have an optimistic view of what the future was. He was certain that we were going to kill ourselves in, in a nuclear war. 
which could still happen. And my belief was that, you know, we were essential. I, I was a hippie. So I, I believed I believed that, you know, what was going on was any advanced civilization goes through a test. You go through a test where your technology outstrips your, your sense of responsibility, which is what we have now. If you survive that, you get to learn to have respect for all living things. You work in partnership with nature. You know, you achieve a really great civilization. And if you don't pass that test, you wipe yourselves out. And I said, that is what we're going through right now. If we make it to Star Trek times, we'll have passed the test. And he liked that. He liked that a lot. Ultimately, that got incorporated in Star Trek Phase 2. And writers for Next Generation, at least while Gene was alive, cursed me out because the idea that the personnel, the Star Trek people, the officers, because uh, when it went into Next Generation, it was the Star Trek Phase Two template. It was in the Bible. I co-wrote the Bible with Gene for Star Trek Phase Two, and it was very clear that our people had to reflect the kind of consciousness revolution that was needed in order to, for the planet to survive that long. And that did not mean that there could be no conflict. It meant that that was how the, the writers all assumed, like, we can't have, you know, nothing can be done. We have no conflict. It all sucks. No, that just changed the nature of the conflict and made it more adult and more philosophical. And, and you know, but there still could be plenty of action adventure. It was more along the lines of the Horta, Devil in the Dark. The conflict was because you don't understand each other. So, which is the conflict in Star Trek, the motion picture as well. What ultimately became of that novel? The novel got shit canned after about two or three months. But that novel, interestingly enough, the premise of the novel was essentially, it wasn't a Star Trek novel, but the premise of that novel was the God thing. When does Star Trek Phase 2 start to be even discussed the god thing as you know was gene's first script through star trek the motion picture you know i started working for him as his research assistant in the summer of 74 in may of 74 in may of 75 he got called in to write the feature at that point after the novel got shit canned while we had been sitting around talking and everything, he learned that I had been keeping myself alive by doing freelance carpentry and stuff. And so when I was no longer doing his research, I now moved into baby-proofing the house for Rod and doing handyman stuff around the house and still hanging out there all the time smoking talking. <laughs> So, and when he got called into Paramount, my job was to move his boxes, all the old boxes from his garage back into his offices at Paramount. And I had the, uh, one of, one of my favorite psychic experiences was I walked into what had been Gene's Coon's office, which was adjacent to, to Gene's to Roddenberry's office, just separated by two secretarial offices. 
I walked into that office and I said, this is going to be my office. You know, not out of any hubris or anything. I just said, this is going to be my office. Holy shit. And in December, when, when the God thing was summarily rejected, Gene invited me to come up with an idea for the feature. And I wrote a treatment for a possible feature. And Gene said, uh, this is very good, but it's, a, it's an episode. It's not, a, it's not a feature. And then he came up with an idea for a feature that was strangely similar to it and invited me to co-write it with him. So I came in to co-write it, and that was my office. I had read that you guys had worked on something that involved time travel, and was it JFK or RFK? It was JFK. That was the treatment that we co-wrote for Paramount as the feature that also got rejected. So does it go, you guys are working on these feature ideas, and then how does that then morph into, no, we're going to do another television series? After all the Roddenberry attempts at a feature and the invitations that went out to Harlan and John D.F. Black and Richard Matheson, everybody was sort of invited to come up with something for it. And nobody did. At least nobody that Paramount rejected all of them. And then came... uh, uh, Jerry Eisenberg and Jerry Abrams, J.J. Abrams' daddy. And they, I forget the name of their company, but they came along and they had an idea for, and they put together Phil Kaufman to direct and got, strangely, Chris Bryant and Alan Scott, whose most science fiction-y sort of thing they'd ever done well, I guess they had worked somewhat on the prisoner, and they had and they had written fabulous script in Don't Look Now. So they were brought in to write the script. You know, I got to hang out. I never sort of left. And they appreciated having me there because they didn't know Star Trek from anything. They were completely flummoxed as to what to do, and they were getting different instructions as was the case forever. They were getting one set of instructions from Abrams and Eisenberg, another set from Phil Kaufman, and another set from Gene. And they were trying to make sense of it all, and they absolutely couldn't. And they wrote first draft that was the land of the Titans, or the planet of the Titans, I guess. You know about that one? I've heard about it, but I don't know what the story is itself. I don't remember. (laughs) But it wasn't very good. And, you know, they were more than happy to acknowledge that it wasn't very good. They were very, very happy to leave when they left. But they were great guys. I really liked them. They bought, well, they optioned a treatment of mine for their company. And we always enjoyed talking and hanging out. And then Phil Kaufman took a stab at it on his own, and he wrote a treatment, another treatment, and that didn't work out either. And when that failed to get anybody excited, they decided, well, the hell with it, we'll start a fourth network and Star Trek will be the flagship for it. I became assistant to the producer for the very early part of Star Trek Phase 2, and then 
Harold Livingston came on, and he also didn't know Star Trek at all. I would sit in on the on the writer meetings with Harold, and I would let him know was and what wasn't Star Trek. And Harold insisted to Gene that he made me story editor. And for years and years and years, I thought that Gene had resisted that with everything he was worth. And I forget where I learned, somewhere along the lines, maybe someone, one of the people who interviewed me at some point, because they had more information than I did, said that, no, no, Gene was initially, you know, resistant, but he went, he was absolutely agreed to it and and promoted you for it. So I had to forgive Gene for that. Being the co-writer of the Phase 2 Bible, tell me a little bit more about the show. Was it all the original plus more, or how was that going to work out? Leonard didn't want to do the series. He had great issues with Gene and great issues with Paramount, which all about from the motion picture because it was Robert Wise. When Robert Wise came on, that was what basically resolved those issues. He Bob went to bat with him uh, for him for with Paramount and uh, got the uh, the money issues and merchandising issues settled. Who wouldn't want to work with Bob Wise? But he was not going to be in the series, so we had we had a full Vulcan instead. Total total logic, but a young Vulcan who was David Gautreaux was cast for it, and the idea was Zahn was a full Vulcan who believed that Spock's dual nature, being half human, was a distinct advantage. He had, you know, Zahn had Spock's shoes to fill, and he was not human, and he didn't know how to relate to people. So he wanted to learn everything he could about human experience. Uh, Data, perhaps, (laughs) which is why I say it was the template. And then we had Ilya, who was the Delton, who had psychic abilities, Deanna Troy, and we had Decker who was a first officer, captain being groomed, who was Riker. It was envisioned that it would be much more of a sort of father-son relationship between Kirk and Decker, which would, you know, was again the template for Picard and Riker. So you already had people cast. I know that you wrote, you wrote personally, at least one script for it, but how many scripts were written for it before the motion picture started to come back up again? Well, the motion picture was the two-hour pilot. So in my image, it was very different than, no, no, not very different. It had a lot of things the same, but uh, my contribution to that was essentially... I focused on the character of Egypt. For Star Trek The Motion Picture, we had a studio and we had a whole bunch of very well-meaning, well-intentioned people, all of whom had their own idea of what Star Trek was and what Star Trek needed to be. To me, the thing that I loved about Star Trek was its deeper ideas, its philosophy, higher consciousness, when it was applied. So for me, we had Robots Return. We had, uh, what was it, Nomad, the character from, what episode was that? 
the changeling. Right. What had been adapted were those Robots Return, I think, was a uh, was a Genesis 2 or Planet Earth episode. They, you know, they were very destructive. The point was very destructive. I had, my idea was that V'ger was coming back in search. It wanted to join with the creator. None of the others had it. This was about V'ger's evolution and V'ger coming to its next state of being. And essentially, it had set a trap for its creator. It knew that it knew that whoever was capable of punching in the code on the ground test computer was had to be its creator. My idea for it was that the minute Decker punches in that code, and Decker knows what he's doing when he does it, there's that moment feature immediately zaps him. It's things have to immediately start. That was the one thing I disagreed with Bob Wise about on the film was because he wanted Decker to walk around and get together with Ilya. And that was the emotional moment, but it was not made it impossible, damn near impossible to understand what V'ger was doing. And V'ger was the plot of the thing. The, the, to complete that story, it had to happen immediately. In the director's edition, and I don't know today's director's edition, but in the director's edition, they did start a bunch more sound effects and things started rumbling and things started happening more there but it still didn't, the the blast of light didn't happen, the merge didn't happen until he got together with Ilya. But originally, in the in the In Thy Image script, the Alan Dean Foster In Thy Image script, it was uh, the typical Kirk uh, outsmarts V'ger by drawing a droopy daisy and explaining why this was more creative than anything that uh, V'ger could do. And V'ger buys it. And then in a subsequent version of it, which was the version that Paramount wanted, V'ger had gone around and collected all the information in, in the known universe. And they we give it the ground test, the code from the ground test computer. And it realizes, okay, now I can complete my mission. And its mission was to bring all that information to to its creator, right? So Paramount wanted it to, particularly Jeff Katzenberg, wanted it to disgorge all that information. I went to Bob Wise. I said, what does that look like? What is that? If it's all the information that we don't know about in the universe, how do we recognize it? And Bob agreed with me. and uh, And I wrote a lengthy memo to Jeff Katzenberg and Tom Perry explaining why that could not possibly work. And Jeff Katzenberg brought me into his office and he yelled at me for what seemed like an hour and said, if the next script comes back with that fucking ending of yours and I'm throwing it in the trash and it's never going to get made. Eight-year-olds have to understand what the hell is happening. And if an eight-year-old can't understand it, we're dead. Wise, you know, I, I had wise on my side ultimately, and there was really no choice. There was there was nothing that could be done. 
by attrition, it came down to my ending. From what I understand, you were around when Klingon was made up as a language. I'm very curious how the whole decision to make the Klingons look so different also came about. I was not involved in the look of the Klingons. That was probably Gene, and that was probably something that he had wanted to do earlier and didn't have the budget for. So he went for it. It was Jimmy Dewan and I who came up with the initial phrases for the Klingon language. And this was, once again, uh, another another episode of sitting around, get stoned, and just making shit up. That was the basis that Mark Auckland used to develop the, you know, the full-on language. Those first little bits of it were ours. We had a good time. I mentioned that is a fun time smoking pot and with Jimmy Dewan. My office was pretty much the office where people came to get high. Phil Rollins would be walking by in the hall and the doors would all be closed and he was, he'd be walking by in the hall. I can smell what you're doing in there. In thy image is the pilot for this, for phase two. When did they say, no, no, we're going to make a feature out of this? When they looked at in my image and, and they said, yeah, this, this can work. I don't know what their criteria were. It didn't work any better to me than the one that Gene and I had come up with. I think uh, that would have been a really good one. For that matter, I think the, the one that, that I had come up with that sort of inspired the one that Gene and I worked on would have been good. It was the one I had come up with was very much a Spock story. It was how how the Vulcans came to be logical, how they came to uh, value logic and, uh, and peace, because they had been as warlike as Romulans. They were in a war with another thing, and uh, they had developed a kind of psychic cloud that they thought would result in uh, the enemy fighting amongst themselves. It was designed to uh, make the enemy disorient them and cause them to fight amongst themselves and have discipline break down. And at the beginning of my episode, it turns out that Vulcan is going through, is passing again through that cloud. And so they become, they become warlike again. In the, in the first time, it had happened, they discovered that it only worked on them. It didn't work on the enemy. In a time travel thing, Spock is able to go back and prevent it from being released in the first place to restore the universe the way it should be. With this whole idea of Spock not wanting to come, sorry, I should say Leonard Nimoy not wanting to come back, was he always a part of In Thy Image or was he kind of added in later on? He was added in later on. He was Zahn first off. I guess that makes a lot of sense since Decker and Aaliyah are still there. And did I read right that she was originally called Tasha? She was called Tasha after the after V'ger transformed her into a robot. Yeah, I always found it interesting the whole idea of Spock kind of rejecting the full logic and having that connection with V'ger. I always liked how he is kind of looking for something within V'ger. 
that was largely Leonard to bring his character full circle, to have him embrace his human half in a way that he never had before, to embrace emotion and recognize that that essentially was what Viger was looking for, even though Viger didn't know it. So you ultimately ended up with a associate producer credit. Was that always in the works or should you have been like story editor or what would have been a, a better title for you? It was appropriate that I was associate producer for sure. I was involved in great many facets of the production. I had brought on uh, uh, Sam Nicholson and Brian Longbotham, who did the engine room effects and did the famous microwave walk that was the setting for V'ger, uh, you know, for Voyagers. I had done some other of the, the effect stuff. I should have had a co-story credit. I didn't go for this co-story credit because I felt bad for Gene. Crazy. But I, I felt bad for Gene because it was an ongoing war between Roddenberry and Livingston. They hated each other. And there were the story of, you know, the initials on pages coming to the set. You know, we were writing like crazy through the first three months of production, maybe more. Gene was trying to get his stuff in. Harold was getting his stuff in. I was getting stuff in as well. My job was largely to keep Harold and Gene from killing each other and to try and find compromise versions that would incorporate some of each of their ideas. So I was doing a lot of that. It was hell. It ruined my relationship with Gene because he saw me as being disloyal because I didn't automatically support what he was trying to do. And I was of the opinion that if my job was to do the best I could for the production, because that was what I was there for. And I had to support whatever version seemed to me to be the best for the production. So there were, there were times when I supported Gene. There were times when I supported Harold. There were times when I supported myself. The ending was mine, and the ending should have been enough for me to get a story credit just on that. But Harold told Gene that, you know, when when it came down to, you know, the list of participating writers and what they had done, Gene would, was going for co-screenplay credit. And Harold said, I will fight you to the death on this. There is no fucking way that you are getting co-screenplay credit on this. And he had the pages to prove it. Oh, there was the, all the initial pages. And so Gene, at that point, said, fine, I'll take co-story credit with Alan Dean Foster. And I was not going to fight him for that. You know, I, I felt bad. I didn't support him enough. I felt, you know, okay, fine. So I let it go. I let him have co-story credit and the bastard pulled out of his co-story credit after it was too late for me to apply for it. I can't even imagine how much I lost in residuals on that basis. 
I've heard horror stories of working with Gene, and then I've heard nothing but just glowing stories of Robert Wise and just how much people appreciated him. Oh, God, the movie would not have happened without Robert Wise. Robert Wise was absolutely the glue that hold, held it together. And it was it was such a horror show. Bob had all this, you know, all the experience in the world. He had four Oscars. He had, you know, he had science fiction credits that anybody would kill for, you know, with Andromeda Strain and Day the Earth Stood Still. I mean, incredible. And every day at noon, he would have his vodka with his lunch. And by five o'clock, you know, and he would come in at five o'clock in the morning by, you know, by evening. By the time he came into his office for his lunch, he was, he would be walking like this, just 35 years, 35 years, like nothing, nothing, never experienced. Um, you can't see my shoulders slumping. <laughs> but he'd be saying the worst experience he'd had in 35 years. He couldn't believe it. It was so hard. And so many different opinions and so much, you know, and it wasn't that anybody was trying to make his life miserable. It was nobody had nobody had taken a series and turned it into a major motion picture before. You know, and Robert Abel, Robert Abel had conned, had conned Jeff Katzenberg. Robert Abel did a magnificent dog and pony show. He had wonderful little stills and things. Of, of what it was going to be. Great drawings, con conceptual drawings. But he had endless excuses for why he didn't have any footage yet. And, and he, needed, he needed new computers and new hard drives and new this and new that. And he got, and, and Katzenberg kept approving more and more equipment for him. And then it was taking ages for him to learn how to use the equipment and how to incorporate it. And in January of 1979, with 11 months to go until the release date, which had been locked in by Paramount to, by blind booking the, the show into, uh, into theaters in order to get some money to help pay for the damn thing, Bob Abel finally shows his first 30 seconds of test footage. Robert Wise walked out of that screening. That was the angriest I ever saw him. He was ready to kill. He says, I never want to see that motherfucker again. I know I don't, don't want to. He's fired. He's off. He's gone. Nothing. And at that point, we had to hire Doug Trumbull and we hired John Dykstra and they had to work seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And every week, Todd Ramsey would get a new list of shots that would not be in the film. And he had to recut it. And, you know, and the, the, interminable, the interminable trip through V'ger, when we're theoretically taken inside V'ger, and it looks like a fucking cloud, right? That was supposed to be what we were promised was that would all be hard-edged interior. That would all be mechanical and, you know, physical space that would be claustrophobic as hell. And that we, you know, it was Jonah inside the whale. It was supposed to be scary as shit. Instead, we got 
cloud. It was horrific. All the jeopardy that you were supposed to feel from being trapped inside this thing was gone. And that was a huge part of the film. Ultimately, what did the movie do for you? It made me think that I could write and produce my own stuff as a feature writer. And so when my agent came to me and said he could get me TV work, I turned it down. And as a result of that, I mostly starved through the 80s and didn't have a second crack at anything until Total Recall. I've talked to so many directors and writers that were at one point associated with it, all the way from Richard Rush, Cronenberg, just all of these guys throughout all the years have had their names attached to Total Recall. Where do you fit into that story? And is your version close to what we see in theaters? Some of it is, some of it isn't. And I got credit on it. There were 65 drafts. I worked on the first two. I also worked on the next 40, but that was just giving notes. I didn't actually do any specific writing on them, but I did. Ron kept sending me the latest draft and the latest draft and the latest draft, and I kept sending him notes. When was that first draft? Do you remember? Yeah. Yeah. That first draft was 1975. It was 90 when that came out? Yep. Holy cow. That must have been an interesting thing to see develop. For sure. I mean, it came damn close to being made in the mid-80s. You know, De Laurentiis was going to do it with Bruce Beresford directing. This was going to star Patrick Swayze. It went through so many different incarnations. They were, it, it turned into the writer's arbitration from hell. Writer's Guild arbitrations are supposed to take three weeks. Ours took at least six months. Well, from what I understand, you can't write a screenplay about one character who seems like he's something and then he's actually something else. <laughs> I didn't know it as well as I knew my own version, but I did know Ron came to me. He and O'Bannon had done what basically amounted to the first third of the script. Uh, basically, the stuff that happens on Earth before before Quaid goes to Mars. And they had hit a brick wall because they were operating on the assumption the Earth intelligence was really trying to kill him. And I said, no, that can't be the case, because if they wanted to kill him, they could just kill him. There had to be a reason why his memory had been changed, and they had to access those memories somehow so that whatever was going on had to be it had to be about them finding out what was in his head that he wouldn't give them previously so i did two versions of that i essentially developed the martian revolution i developed the look of mars and the look of mars was was very star warsian but it was before star wars so i can rust it out and you know I had domes, but the domes were, uh, I had the domes had large areas under them and they were, they had algae growing, uh, which was providing oxygen. And and every now and then you would pump the air out of the domes and into the more habitable areas so that you could get 
you would have habitable areas. They had a different atmosphere generator in the final version. They made that the ancient alien machinery. Um, I had ancient alien machinery as well, but it had different purpose. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> but it wasn't, a, it wasn't an atmosphere generator. And if you really think about it, you couldn't do that if you were if you were colonizing Mars. You had to have a plan to generate your own oxygen before you would have discovered that there was ancient alien machinery. <laughs> so ultimately, you did work in television and you worked on sliders a bunch. How did you get involved with that? After Total Recall, I got feature writing deals, a couple of feature writing deals at Universal based on uh, Total Recall and, and pitches. During one of them, I was working down the hall from Jacob Epstein. So I got to know Jacob. When my agent submitted me for sliders, Jacob remembered me and asked what I could do with, with the episode Fever. And I did a complete page one rewrite on Fever over the weekend. And Mario Azapati, or Azapati, I think, who was the director for that episode, read it and went, holy shit, this is fantastic. And Jacob was blown away by it. And so I got hired as set script consultant. The fever was sort of the my test. How about today? What are you working on these days? I'm working on a novel. So I've got about 600 pages. It's way too long. Started about five different novels. I never got past page 100 in any of them. But I'm working with with a woman who who lives in my village, who has three published novels, not self-published, actually publisher-published. And it's been great. I've been learning from her. We were both very active in the Green Party here, which is where I met her. When I found out she was a writer also, one day I sent her three pages. of. So I said, hey, you want to play? And I sent her three pages that just came out of nowhere. And I said, you know, add to it, change it, do whatever you want. And so she did, and we sent it, We started sending pages back and forth to each other, and we've been doing it ever since. And uh, it's now it's now James Michener-esque kind of thing. It's at least two generations of characters, and goes from basically 1984 to 2028. Got some science fiction elements. It's more, it's uh, mystery and action elements to it. And it has uh, a good deal of climate change in it, but climate change elements, it has Native American elements. <laughs> it's got, it's, uh, it's an interesting piece. And we'll see. But we're both having a terrific time on it. We think it's good, we think it's compelling. We'll find out. I, I really wanted to do that because I am so tired of writing screenplays and having them be nothing unless somebody finances them. At least when I finish a book, it's a book. 
Well, Mr. Pobel, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Happy to do it. It's now getting to the point where if you want to talk about Star Trek, the motion picture and or Star Trek phase two, one of the last guys standing. There's <laughs> not more than... <laughs> Log of the Starship Enterprise, Stardate 5943.7. Captain Kirk, this is Lieutenant Uhura. Mr. Spock is ready to patch in. Go ahead, Mr. Spock. I'm on the surface of the destroyed barbarian planet now, Captain. Destroyed? What do you see, Mr. Spock? The surviving inhabitants are in a dreadful condition. It seems they can't control their limbs, and their minds are dull and useless. Fascinating. They seem to be in a state identical to that curious 20th century earth disease called hard drug abuse. I suspect it has destroyed all meaningful life on this wretched planet. A tragic find, Mr. Spock. As a Vulcan, I find the need for hard drugs to be totally illogical. But as a half-human Spock, surely you can appreciate the suffering that hard drug abuse causes. We can only hope that other civilizations will not make the same mistake. All right, we are back and we are talking about Star Trek, the motion picture. And before we even started to uh, record this episode, Trevor, you were talking about the overture, which I have to say, I was equally confused when I was watching this on Blu-ray and just having this overture start with nothing and then the Paramount logo. I was like, why don't you play the Paramount logo first and then show us that this is an overture? Or if you're going to play the overture, just just have the word overture on it. They usually told you when that's an overture. They didn't just, okay, we're going to start with a empty screen or like a screen with just a single image and playing music around it and leave the audience confused as to what the hell's going on. Granted, it's a gorgeous score to listen to for, for a couple minutes, but it's like, you're still confused. Well, yeah. Talk about tying this to Star Trek, the next generation Here's the score. Here is the score for the next generation that Jerry Goldsmith came up with that theme. It's fantastic. I remember when I first saw the motion picture, I'm like, oh, that's where they got the the theme for next generation. It's interesting, though, how that for years was the Star Trek score. Certainly as I was growing up, that was the Star Trek music that really resonated for me. The Jerry Goldsmith stuff, even though it was the original Alexander Courage theme from the 60s, which isn't in this really at all, except for the odd bar or two here and there. And then it, that's since since uh, Michael Giacchino and the J.J. Abrams movies, that's had a real resurgence now and has been reworked and is now almost again, and with the new Star Trek show, Strange New Worlds, it's almost become again the Star Trek score. So, But this for me, yeah, this is the best. This, this is my favourite score of all time. And I really don't mean that in terms, I really mean that. It's, it's my favourite score of all time. To your point about the overture too, and we could really get heady and talk about how, oh, well, maybe this is the voyage of V'ger coming to Earth kind of thing because of the Starfield. But I would rather have seen like a little bit of the cloud, the V'ger cloud or something. Apparently, and we'll talk more about the restoration director's cut type stuff later on as we go. Apparently, so many prints of this movie, they just lopped off the overture because projectionists either didn't care or they thought that it was just black leader. And they're just like, boop, that's it. Started with the Paramount logo. Off we go to the point where the guys that restored it 
they couldn't even find a version with the overture in the Paramount vault. It was just not there. They had to like go out into the world and find a copy that had the actual overture on it. It was that in danger just being missing. I mean, I don't necessarily think it works, but you know, this is, and we talked a little bit before we started recording, we talked about how, you know, overtures just aren't there anymore. And the last one I remember watching was when we did an episode on the black hole because, and, but I think again, with that, it's boom, you know, overture. And that score is very bombastic. Thank you, John Barry. And overtures are very much, we're very much more made for like, 70 millimeter Cinerama kind of films. Um, not so much like the multiplex films of today. They were very much made for like the single screen, big screen experiences. Going to the theaters back then, I think it was more of an event and experience than it is today. Because when you went to see a film like Lawrence of Arabia, Ten Commandments, Star Trek, Most Picture, anything with like overtures at the beginning, you knew you were going there not just to see a movie, but to see an event. This was like, I think, one of the last films to do that, that I can remember at least. Like, well, like you said, The Black Hole had an overture by John Barry. I'm surprised that there wasn't one for The Hateful Eight because Tarantino was really going for that roadshow type experience. And I don't know, there might have been one. I have tried to put that movie out of my head. Was this a Robert Wise hangover thing, really? Because obviously he comes from Sound of Music and Day of the Earth sort of still, you know, he's been around for years. So do you think he was the one who, oh, you might know this, Mike, but was he the one who put this, put this in there, wanted this to happen? I'm not sure where it came from, but yeah, that kind of makes sense. And I want to say, I know that there was a tie between this and his, one of his previous movies, The Sand Pebbles, and it might have been an overture for that, but I don't remember. So I've luckily one thing about Star Trek the motion picture is that there is a real wide selection of making of books for this. There's the Sackett Roddenberry making of, there's the Walter Koenig diary making of, there's that art of Star Trek that I was talking about. There's return to tomorrow, which is just freaking crazy how thick this making of is. And that was originally supposed to be like a cinema fantastic article. And the guy just kept writing and writing and writing. And he got so many interviews. It's basically an oral history of the movie. It's it, yeah, it's amazing. Amazing. Speaking of Walter Koenig, I noticed in the film that the co-stars of like the original series aren't utilized as much. You don't see much uh, Uhura. You don't see too much of uh, Chekhov. You see a little more of Scotty. You see a little more of Scotty than you do of them, but mostly they are kind of relegated to more um, background. That's in line with the 60s completely, because the 60s, it was always Kirk, Spock and McCoy. Primarily, every story arced around one of those. And then you'd have the odd episode where Uhura would get a bit more to do or Scotty would get a bit more to do. Or, But I think they I think they saw more character potential in Scotty even back in the 60s, whereas the rest, they did fall into the background particularly, really. So, And that, that's a trend that carries on through all the subsequent movies, really. They don't, you know, they don't all get a lot to do, which is a bit of a shame. This also introduces our new Klingons, which would also hold over into the next generation. Because before that, we just saw guys in, for lack of a better term, blackface almost, with the dark hair and sometimes the fangs, I think we would see. like I, I just remember mostly Mark Leonard when he was playing a Klingon. He did a really great job with that. And this one, we've got now the ridges and that. It's not nearly the... 
new Klingon. I don't know why they had to redo the Klingons for Star Trek Discovery. That just did not make any sense to me. But we had much closer to your Worf Klingons in this one. Maybe they felt like the Klingons needed more of a distinct visual look in the age of increased, you know, special effects and, and you know, and, and makeup artwork and this kind of thing. But yeah, it, it's ama- it's it's funny later on how Star Trek tries to write around the discrepancy <laughs> in several episodes. The Enterprise, the TV show, actively tries to create a whole three-part episode about why this happens, whereas in Deep Space Nine, they literally just go, yeah, we don't talk about it. That is the best wow. <laughs> description. Those are Klingons? Mr. War? They are Klingons. And it is a long story. What happened? Some kind of genetic engineering? A viral mutation? We do not discuss it with outsiders. Wow, I didn't know about that Enterprise thing, because I, I could not get into Star Trek Enterprise at all. Yeah, it's a bit mixed. It's a bit of a mixed bag. But in the fourth season, they do lots of cluster stories, which go back to, particularly to the 60s, and they try and... It's essentially fan fiction, really. They're trying to sketch in bits of canon, bits of little references that they do. with, And it's it's fun, for the most part. But yeah, one of them is about the... Uh, and I think it's some sort of super virus that creates a mutation within the Klingons. And it's ridiculous. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah, I heard that. <laughs> wow. Like, you know? yeah, yeah, that's wow. what I heard. Is like the reason it's because they're... They suffer from this like condition that causes their head to become like that. I don't know. Bridge That's up. at least what I heard. Admittedly, of the three of us, I'm probably the most Star Trek illiterate. <laughs> it wasn't like I was averse to it. I just kind of never was exposed to it that much. And I mean, I'm sure if I watched the show, I would, I would love it. But there's so many shows now. Paramount really kind of latched onto it and went with it, um, for better or worse. Well, that's the irony, right? Is that Star Trek Phase 2 was supposed to be this new flagship for a new network for Paramount. You could almost call it a United Paramount Network if you wanted to. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, and what happens with Star Trek The Next Generation? It becomes the flagship for UPN. And then what happens with Star Trek Discovery and eventually Strange New Worlds and Picard, they are the flagships for Paramount+. Plus. So they know what's going on. They know what's their most popular property, which is makes a lot of sense. But yeah, it's a, a very ironic that 10 years before UPN becomes a thing, that this is what's going on with Star Trek Phase 2. The whole idea of having a fourth network, I want to say Fox was starting right around the same time as well. That was quite a, a major thing. So now we're getting fourth, fifth networks out of this. It's it's wild. Sooner or later, Star Trek is going to have its own network. Well, they started pulling in because they used to have Star Trek, the original series with those new special effects. Again, we'll talk about that later. But they had uh, original series, Voyager, Deep Space Nine, Enterprise, and Next Gen all on Netflix, and then eventually all those get pulled over into Paramount. So people cried about Friends leaving Netflix, but I was crying more about Next Gen leaving Netflix, because there's a lot of times where I'm just like, I really want to kick back and watch that one episode that I love so much. Chaka, when the walls fell. Yeah, and a lot of people felt that way about Voyager, actually, because that's consistently been Netflix's most popular series. That's had such a resurgence of 
you know, esteem in the last few years. Hence why now there's so many Voyager links creeping into modern Trek, the new Trek. Whereas back in the day, everyone thought it was rubbish <laughs> for the most part, you know, but it's hugely popular now. So it's funny how these things get traction years later quite often. And that's what I'm noticing with Star Trek lately is that quality wise, it varies. But then it always did, Trevor. It was always varied. I sit here as a 90s Trek boy. Honestly, week to week, it would be the best of both worlds, which is amazing. And then you'd get something like Sub Rosa, where Beverly Crusher gets <coughs> haunted by a grandmother's ghost or something like that, you know? So it literally goes up and down. It's always been the way Star Trek is, right from the beginning. But that's why Star Trek always fascinated me. Like, the fandom has always fascinated me. I love listening to people talk about it, because when they talk about it with that much passion, it's it's kind of fascinating to listen to. And, like, when you talk to them about the motion picture especially – I mean, they'll be like hardcore defenders of the first picture. And you can kind of see why, because like I said, it wasn't trying to mimic Star Wars more. It was more 2001, because as much action as the series had, it still was more about socially, like I said, cerebral than like action, even though there was action in the show. It was more about social issues and stuff like that. Diversity and left-wing virtue signaling is more important than creating an actual quality product. And you know how I know that because just type in Star Trek Discovery on Rotten Tomatoes and there you have it. 86% from the left-wing critics. It's just absolutely incredible. And now that Stacey Abrams showed up on the show and said one sentence, well, it's officially the greatest show of all time, except womp womp womp, 36% average audience score. How has this show been ongoing since 2017? I mean, I literally didn't even know that it existed and the audience reviews are just terrible so let's talk about a few things that have always bothered me about star trek the motion picture shall we it takes a while before we're introduced to the characters it takes a long time before the ship ever even leaves dry dock but in the meantime we're being introduced to you know v'ger or you know the entity the intruder i think they call it through so much of the beginning part of it before v'ger has a name they say, like, oh, my God, it is huge. It is two AUs in size. Who here knows what an AU is? Is that gold? So for the listening public, that is a the astronomical unit, and it's the distance between the Earth and the sun. And as we remember from the song, The sun is far away, about 93 million miles away. And that's why it looks so small. Well, so it's 186 billion miles wide. You still don't really get the scope when you hear that, but you definitely get more when it comes to two AUs. So this thing traveling through our solar system, it's huge. I mean, I don't know if it's going to go through like Saturn or Jupiter or anything, but it's just, it, it's tremendously big. Hey man, look at that salt shaker, man. That is huge. Does that track, though, with later on when Spock is sort of going through it and he's sort of talking about how there are whole galaxies in here and whole... It's, and it's like, well, if actually 186 billion miles sounds a lot in space, but it's not that big. It's not, it's, not the, it's not the distance of our solar system. Like you said, Mike, it's between the Earth and the Sun. So how has it got multiple... Is it a TARDIS from Doctor Who? Has it got multiple like dimensions? Maybe, maybe. Who knows? I mean, if I'm looking for consistency in this, I probably shouldn't be, should I, really? Well, I guess that would be the diameter. So then the circumference would be a whole in the area of it. I mean, that'd be what, uh, t two, uh, pi, uh, oh, uh, fuck it. <laughs> yeah. Let's not go there. 
Yeah, because I don't get the scope of what V'ger is supposed to be. Because when I think about V'ger in, in terms of like the film, I just think of something maybe Death Star size, nothing like huge like that. Yeah, it's much bigger than that, though. Like when you said about Spock going through it, probably one, that's probably one of my favorite scenes in the film because that's a, just a gorgeous looking scene to look at. Music to that is incredible as well. And then you see um, Tasha, Aaliyah, sorry. You see that. Oh, yeah, that like statue-ish type thing. I was trying to figure out how to describe it. You see that statue of her. I was imagining what would th- what this probably looked like back in 79 with people who they were probably like kind of like blown away by the, the scope of it. And it's a beautiful scene. It's a beautiful looking scene. Since Ilya is bald, when you see that figure of her inside of V'ger, I always, 100%, even though I know what it is, I always think that's a baby. So I'm thinking of 2001. I'm thinking of the star child. Yeah, but you're right. I don't, I don't really get the enormity of V'ger. There's so many, if not direct lifts, there's so many sort of attempts to replicate that. As you, as you said, Trevor, as well, the sequence with the Enterprise and first seeing the Enterprise Again, I really mean this when I say it. That's my favorite ever piece of music in film. I love that so much. And that sequence is hilarious and you can lampoon it. In fact, I think the, um, one of the most recent Star Trek series, Lower Decks, which is a comedy, did lampoon this at one point. And I think it did a really sort of long, like, sequence and it just took the, took the, took the mickey out of it. But it, it's a great moment because, and Doug, Doug Trumbull said that he really fought for that because he said he wanted, he said the maxim that Kub- I got from Kubrick was to just let the film go for a bit, you know, not worry too much, just let, let it let it take its time. And that's something that has been forgotten, particularly in this day and age. I mean, you'd never get that in the modern Star Trek movies. Loads of people knock the motion picture for that, and they, and they mock it. And I get it, I do, because on one level it's funny. But on the other, I love the fact it did that. I love the fact it took its time to properly show that design of that ship and actually get into it. And Because this, this was an iconic ship even then. This was an iconic design, and it had been upgraded. And they'd done this visual effects work in order to make the actual design of the ship on the exterior, let alone the interior, look different from the original series. While it's still the Enterprise... It's not. It's a new version of the Enterprise. So to actually take its time to properly, you know, do some <laughs> Starship porn, <laughs> you know, and properly go around there, I, I think is great, you know. And I, th- I really think that's a testament to this film because no other Star Trek movies ever did anything like that. This film really did want to put the money on the screen. It was going to let you know that we've spent money on this and this is not cheap uh, rubber costumes and, you know, cheap sets this is a budget put to a film and we're taking this as seriously as it can be taken this is not just can't be star trek anymore this is star trek uh, for lack of a better term this is the next generation of, of what star trek is supposed to be it looks gorgeous compared to today the effect you could tell the the matte paintings and the like especially when they're in the space you could tell the where it was put in there but for the 79 it was probably just absolutely stunning mind-blowing how these effects looked and i think they wanted to take advantage of it and make sure the people not like shoving in your face like appreciate this appreciate this look you know it was more like beauty well it's kind of a victory lap but it's almost a victory lap that comes at the beginning of the film it's like hey look at we're finally on the big screen in the past you saw pretty small-ish models flying past you on your little TV screen. Now here is the scope of what 
this enterprise ship is. And we can actually show you and have, and the, the best thing for me is having the little people in front of it and just being like, this is to show you the size of this thing. And also to show you, like, this is what a ship looks like when it's above San Francisco and showing San Francisco as being kind of the hub of the Starfleet world as well. It was like, I can see why they're doing it, but, but I almost wish that they did that maybe more towards the end of the film. Like, just kind of like a, a final thing of like, okay, we are back. And I want to say that in – Maybe in Star Trek 2, but like the lights going on the ship yeah, and just like, yeah. hey, here we are. We are ready to go now. And maybe after Kirk says that away, like maybe then we get the flyby of the ship and just how gorgeous this thing is. You get a, a version of that, don't you, at the end of the voyage home where they get a rebuilt enterprise and they, they, they pass ships and then it appears in the horizon and you get the swell of the dun, 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 dun. It's a great little moment, but it's a sort of miniature version of what, what, of what this is. And it works maybe just as well, actually. So yeah, they could have, they could have trimmed it, I suppose, but. The other thing that really gets me in this movie, and I don't know why it bothers me so much, is the lighting on the deck and then also the drab. Everything is so drab in this movie, especially the uniforms and just all of those earth tones that they're going for. And I, I read an interview with the costume designer, and she's like, we couldn't put those uniforms up on screen, the original Star Trek, blue, red, yellow, those primary colors, couldn't put those up on screen because it would be too loud. I'm like, okay, I understand you, but you went too far the other way. This is like earth tones. I mean, I think Gretchen from Project Runway designed these. They are just so drab. I'm happy for Gretchen, <laughs> but... I mean, they're about as classy as like a powder blue tuxedo. Yeah. You know, they just don't look good. It's, and then those security uniforms with the football helmets with the A on there. I'm like, they look like Mr. Freedom French parody film. It's just, they look really bad here. Kirk's captain's uniform. It's very sterile. I kind of got a sterile kind of a vibe off of it. It definitely, it's very low cut. Like, especially like when Bones first comes on the deck wearing that for lack of a better term, that disco outfit. Proper 70s, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Proper, yeah. Pro it's very, it's very 70s. You could tell this was like, I wanted like the big peace medallion. Maybe Star Trek had put killed disco. Uh, you never know. We went back in time, Jim, and we killed disco. I think these uniforms are a bit of a holdover from Phase 2, though, because the intention behind Phase 2, I think it might have been Harold Livingston, one of the producers and, and writers of this, said that they wanted Phase 2 to be more grounded and realistic in comparison to the original series which and and i get the, the thinking in the sense that in the mid-70s cinema and tv uh, changed the country had changed post-vietnam post-nixon all of these things and i think they they were worried that maybe the 60s and the color of that had become a little bit passe in that way and it just wasn't something that could fly so they they intentionally tried to bring it down and, but like you said, Mike, it, it does go too far the other way. And it's why when um, in Star Trek II, Nicholas Meyer completely redesigns the uniforms and the costuming to reflect much more of a naval tradition, it works so much better for that era of Star Trek. I suppose Roddenberry kind of gets it a little bit more right in the next generation when at the start, when it's a little bit more utopian future, they're basically wearing, you know, gym costumes <laughs> with a few, you know, little things on. But I think what they wanted to try and do was replicate, to try and get that effect of a futuristic uniform with a smart sort of casual look, but 
yeah, it's very dour and it doesn't ref- and that, and that the whole film, like you say, is, is like that, you know, and I think maybe that's where a lot of Star Trek fans maybe came out of it and went, that's not like the sixties, but then it was, it wasn't the sixties, you know, I don't think they could have at that time. I don't think they could have just made a big screen version of one of those episodes. No, I think it would have been ridiculous. When you said the uniforms went too much into the wrong the direction, I think you could probably say that about the film. It's like the film was trying to be like more serious than the television show, but at times I think it went too far into that wanting to be taken seriously that it just kind of lost its its sense of – I mean, there is a sense of wonder in the film, but the sense of adventure and, and entertainment, something gets lost in translation. I would like to go through and compare the ready room from the Star Trek Next Gen movies versus the ready room in the TV series, because I'm sure the lighting is a lot darker in the movies. Like, I remember especially, and I think by this time the Borg had taken over the ship, but in First Contact, when they're in that room where the they're the old Enterprise models and stuff, you can barely see what's going on with some of that stuff. And it's kind of the same in here when it's, you're on the bridge and you're just like, ah, it's really dim. I mean, it's cool because you get to see all the flashing lights and the noises and all those kind of things. We've all got our switches, lights, and knobs to deal with, Stryker. I mean, down here, there are literally hundreds and thousands of blinking, beeping, and flashing lights. Blinking and beeping and flashing. They're flashing and they're beeping. I can't stand it anymore. They're blinking and beeping and flashing. Why doesn't somebody pull them together, sir? I'm all right. I'm all right. I know Walter Koenig was just like, hey, man, I'm in a cubby hole over here. You're going to ever see me? And it's like, yeah, it's really tough to see people, to actually see what's going on. Like, you get Kirk, but then the people behind him, it's very difficult to see who's even back there. I think it's the idea of it being cold and sterile came from this, you know, and that's what I'd heard for years. And, I, and you know, people that it just has a distance to it, this film. It doesn't embrace you with that kitsch like the 60s did. I, I agree with that. I don't, as time goes on, I don't think that's a negative in the same way as you may be used to and a lot of people used to, but I think that's definitely part of it. It's almost like we've gone from a used universe to a clean universe. You know, there's that whole thing of like Star Wars as a used universe, whereas 2001 is a clean universe. And I would say maybe the Star Trek TV series, a little bit of a used universe. It feels like there are people walking down those corridors, whereas you switch gears to the movie and now you're in a clean universe. It feels very sterile to your point. It just feels like, yeah, you've got like little Roombas coming through all the time and cleaning things up. And this is very by the book. So like Kirk's office or whatever, doesn't look nearly as lived in as you'll even get with Star Trek Two. And Kirk himself is himself colder and more sterile. And and you know it is it was interesting because they they didn't want they wanted to kill Kirk off. They wanted to actually have him die or and have him replaced by a younger, cooler captain, which is one of the reasons you get Will Decker come in there. I get that, but Decker was on a, a losing stretch because everyone wanted to see William Shatner back with, as Captain Kirk, but he's Admiral Kirk in this. They bumped him upstairs. And that's why Nick, Nick Meyer, who I'm convinced is the man who saved Star Trek ultimately, without Nick Meyer, there would, there wouldn't have been a next generation, I don't think. And he's the one who recognizes that you've got to decrypt the older, aging, middle-aged Kirk. And that's what the Wrath of Wrath of Khan does brilliantly. And, and like you say, you, you, you see his apartment, you see his, his room. Whereas this, 
He's the almost become the older statesman, but really he wants to have his shit back. He wants to do. That's why he's constantly conflicting with Decker because he's trying to be the the younger the young buck he was in the sixties. And I think a lot of fans wanted to see Captain Kirk, not Admiral Kirk. Admiral. And I think that's where there was an immediate resentment to Decker, and and the fact that you know, but but it, this is something they wanted to do. I mean, Decker and Ilya is Riker and Deanna Troy which you later get in the next year. They just reframe that for a different, you know, era. But I, th- I think that's part of the problem in that you have that, you have a, you have a grunt, you have a really grizzled and grumpy bones, even for bones, <laughs> you know, when he comes back in, he doesn't want to be there really. And then you've got Spark who seems to have in this, he's lost a little bit of that humanity that people saw in the sixties and he's, you know, he's gone off to Vulcan. He's gone deep into that Vulcan lore. And then throughout the, the movies, throughout the eighties, he becomes more and more of a human comic, not caricature, but he becomes so much warmer as time goes on. And that's intentional because they realize that the heart of Star Trek is these interactions between these characters. You know, you, this film would never have had them go, you know, camping in the Yosemite singing, row, row, row your boat. <laughs> you know? We're a long way from that here. And I think that's what fans love about, as much as that film is maligned, The Final Frontier, you find me a Star Trek fan who doesn't love all that stuff because I don't think they exist. No, you're right. I mean, this film is very much humorless. It's There's no sense of levity or anything like that. There's maybe one look that Kirk gives where it's like, you see a little bit of a smile, but yeah, for the most part, yeah, this, there's no joking around. There's nothing happening with this. I don't want to rag on Decker, but he really brings the whole thing down for me. I mean, him as a character is just too, he's too sterile. He's too like serious by the book to really be a character you want to connect with, which is probably why in the end they just, I don't want to say kill him off because he doesn't necessarily die. He just, combines with her and becomes one human or one thing because you see in the beginning that spock is in the middle of colonar to completely wipe his emotions and i think that's kind of a metaphor for the film the emotions are gone it's it's very way too self-serious for its own and i think that's why it was kind of a hard connecting with it well it's a real shame because i liked stephen collins up until about 2014. I really liked Stephen Collins. Stephen Collins allegedly confessed during a therapy session to sexually abusing underage girl, exposing himself to two others. Just two years, three years after this, he would be Jay Cutter in Tales of the Gold Monkey. And I loved that series when I was a kid. I went back and tried to do a rewatch and maybe it doesn't hold up very well, especially some of the racial stuff that's going on there with the Japanese. But for the most part, I've really enjoyed that. And, but yeah, I agree. He's just kind of a wet blanket. And then the whole relationship between he and Aaliyah, it's like, okay, well, apparently at one point you were very passionate and now you're here and we get little glimmers of that, but not very much. Mm, he's in a really thankless role though. I mean, even Robert Wise described it as a difficult role and, and he's right. We're not here for Decker. And no fan has turned up for Decker. And he's then got a coming in and he wants to captain the Enterprise, you know, and he's, he's just constantly combative with, with the, the heroes people have turned up to see. So it, it's, it's a really difficult role. And I think he plays it perfectly well. And they try at the end to redeem him where he basically says, look, Jim, you know, it's your ship. I know and all this. I'll be the guy who does that. And that's fine. But I can see Ilea. I can see the reason for Ilea. And I think 
they could have done more with her as a character and her race because they wanted to make her far more sexual and seductive, I think, than she ended up being. And this idea of the Deltons being, you know, and they eventually become the Betazoids in The Next Generation with Deanna Troy, essentially. But it's all very neutered in The Next Generation. It's basically just a bunch of comedy aliens who can read each other's thoughts and occasionally get naked. That's it, right? Whereas in this... Her mother is a total horn dog. Yeah, she was, yeah. Just constantly flirting and trying to have sex with all the captains. And that relationship doesn't quite work in the way that they want it to. And they try and make it the emotional center of the movie. And it's like, why are you making the movie about two characters we've never met who are never going to come back again? You know, and again, I think it's an uh, an overhang from phase two because Ilea was meant to be a main character in phase two, you know, and she would have gone, she, in theory, Persis Kambata could have ended up in a five-year, you know, role as a major Star Trek character, but she doesn't, that doesn't happen. And they yet, they don't seem to let go of that and they don't make it about Kirk and a woman, you know, who, and a guest, you know, a female character or something. You know what I mean? Or they, they don't do, it's almost like the, the important characters are at the background in a way and they're just reacting to everything else going on. And that's, that's doesn't, that doesn't work. And that's immediately why the Wrath of Khan makes it about Kirk all the way through. And that, and that's, that's why it works better as a movie. They kind of hatch their bets on Decker. Deanna Troy has a little more personality than than Aaliyah does, um, in, in terms of inspiration. Like maybe they were thinking, maybe if Decker's popular enough, we'll bring him back somehow in the sequel. That didn't happen, of course. They just brought the original crew back. But yeah, but Decker, I'm tr- I was trying to see what his purpose was. Was he supposed to be like a conduit for the audience? A little bit. I mean, for me. So much, and this is going to sound really weird, but the heart of this movie for me is the wormhole scene. Kirk is like, hey, we need to, and this always confused me, this whole thing of like, we have to go into warp to get out of the solar system. And generally, I guess you don't warp out of the solar system. It's like, it's kind of rude. It's like peeling out of your own driveway or something, right? It's like, okay, yeah, we'll go impulse power out to Ju- Jupiter or something, and then we'll, we'll kick it into gear or something. But yeah, I guess like it's dangerous to go into warp, but they go into warp and they enter into a wormhole and there's an asteroid in the wormhole. And there's this whole thing of like, Hey, fire phasers at that. And then Decker's like, Whoa, belay that order. Use a photon torpedo instead. And then there's all this gobbledygook about how the, once you're in imbalance with the warp, blah, 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 you don't use the phasers. And that basically becomes, I mean, that I'm almost joking, but I'm not when it comes to like, cause you could just chop that fucking scene right the hell out of the movie and not lose anything. But that's the only time where you really get Decker and Kirk kind of going at it and showing Kirk that he doesn't know everything that he actually needs Decker around because Decker knows the ship better than Kirk does right now. But that's a really, it takes a lot to get there. And that whole scene, like I said, that the uh, transporter incident, even though that fucked me up as a kid, there's a lot of stuff before you hit the gas. This movie is just idling for a long time. That scene where they go into warp, it puts them into slow motion, and even they talk, so like, Lily, that phaser. <laughs> it almost becomes to the point of, like, self-parody, because it's so, like, it goes on for way too long. Way, way too long. So did the filming of it, apparently, as well. It took ages. Well, and it sounds like they had to do a lot of reshoots as well. That was one thing that Koenig was saying, is they shot a bunch of stuff, 
They didn't have anything to shoot for a long time, but they were still getting paid. And then they brought them back to, and redid a bunch of stuff. It's like, wow, okay. And coming back to that, the uh, the transporter scene, which, right, is really disturbing, especially the sound it makes before what came back didn't live long, thankfully. It's creepy. That is one of the creepiest lines in the entire franchise, that is. We're introduced to this Vulcan character for like a minute, and then they promptly kill him off in the in the transporter scene. And I think, why? Why introduce a character just to kill him off? Just have two characters that aren't seen on screen. Or don't even have the scene. Is the purpose of it to put Bones on a shuttlecraft and have him be like, I don't trust uh, these damn machines and something died and blah, blah, blah. I mean, because really... It doesn't come back. It's not like they say, hey, V'ger, step into this transporter. We're going to, you know, help you out here, buddy. Like, it's like having a loaded gun and not ever doing anything with it. It's like, all right, well, I guess we got to fix the transporter. But don't worry, we won't even fucking use the transporter for the entire rest of the film. So you're okay because when Sp- ironically Chekhov's gun. Yes, exactly. Because when uh, Spock shows up. 10 minutes after or five minutes after the uh, the the wormhole incident, he arrives by shuttle and it's like, oh, hey, here's this big thing. Spock's here. I do have to say, and I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but there's a fan edit of this film where they cut it down into a TV episode and they did something. It was fan editor named Bionic Bob and Bionic Bob did a really smart thing, which was one start with the ship in motion. So you don't even have all of this early stuff. And basically you sum it all up in a captain's log. You are out on the ship immediately. So the transporter incident is gone. The meeting of bones is gone, which I, I kind of like that, especially when Kirk's like, I need you. I need you. I need you. Damn it, Bones. I need you. Badly. Bones. We need him. I need him. Then my presence is to our mutual advantage. The audience was roaring for that. Uh, Though you get the exact same line with Spock later on. So Spock shows up, and then this fan editor does a really smart thing because Spock's talking about Feeders calling to me or the the intruders calling to me, and then they make his whole thing on Vulcan a flashback. I'm like, oh, that's good because. Otherwise, you know Spock is out there and you know Spock is going to be in this movie. There's no suspense as to, guys, we left the station and there's no Spock. What the hell? Where Where is he? What happened? So having him show up all of a sudden and then do the flashback and like, hey, Spock, you're not doing this. Colonar is not for you. You know, you can we're going to read your thoughts and find out that this thing is calling to you. It is interesting that he shows up and, and to your point, AJ, as far as like, this is not the same Spock that's going to be like, you know, you are and always have been my friend kind of thing. This is a super cold Spock that we have here. And I love how he just shows up. And he's like, uh, yeah, I'll be down in the engine room. I'm going to fix this stuff. And then I'm going to come back and I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm just going to be kind of a dick through the rest of this. And it causes Decker to get demoted like almost twice. First, he's taken off being captain. Then he's like, you know what? Now Spock's going to do this with you. I'm like, I need your chair. Get out of the chair, buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Decker's basically, 
Decker's like, well, fuck me, right? Right. And <laughs> I guess I'll sit over <laughs> here I, now. Exactly. me if I'm wrong, Mike, but didn't it take some convincing to get Leonard Nimoy to even do this it film? It did. Yeah, there was a lot of, I'm doing the finger thing means the money. There was a lot of that going on as far as like, Paramount, you owe me some good cash here. Well, he'd, he'd written a book in the 70s called I Am Not Spock. Because he was angry of being identified constantly with with playing Spock, and he ref- he said no to coming back for Phase Two. So they created a new Vulcan character called Zon X O N, played by David Gutrow, and he pops up at the very beginning of the movie when they're in that. He's one of the people in that science station that sort of gets eaten by Vija or whatever like that. He was down to be the Spock replacement essentially, and it never happened. It, and it took a movie to, like you say, Mike, give them, give Nimoy, you know, back a truckload of money up to his drive, you know, and say, let's do it. And, and I mean, it was the best decision he ever made, really, because then obviously he had the really successful run of Star Trek movies. He directed a few of them. And then in the nineties, I think it was, he wrote the follow up book, I Am Spock. He came to terms with it over the years. So his arc maybe reflects Nimoy's itself. You know, he starts off being, I don't want a beer kind of Spock. And then by the time he gets to the final frontier, like I say, he's toasting marshmallows. We love the character of Spock, but this whole thing of him having this connection with V'ger, I mean, it, it kind of works for me more now than it did before. Because there's that weird moment where uh, Decker's like, can you trust this guy? And then at one point he kind of like tells Kirk, like, no, you got to let V'ger do this kind of stuff. And, and it's like, oh, Decker like gives him a look, like, you see what this guy's doing over here? Like he's, he... and then when Spock leaves the ship, it's like, oh my God, what's he doing? But you know, we all know Spock. We know that his intentions are good. And even before Spock leaves the ship, he mentions V'ger trusting him like a brother or something to that uh, line. So you could tell there's the connection between Spock and V'ger. Like Spock says, you know, I trust him like I trust my brother. Something like something. I I apologize if I screwed up the line. I didn't know that he had a brother. Oh, Sarek. Yeah. And he's got a sister, but, you know, not 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 even he knows that at this time. Right, yeah. <laughs> Michael Burnham. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Poor Michael Burnham. She's got such a problem with her eyes. She's always crying. What's wrong? Have you been crying? Never stops crying. Speaking of eyes, Decker's character in the film always looks, I mean, for lack of a better term, I always thought he kind of looked like a Muppet. Like, there was kind of a Muppet quality to his face the whole film. Like, if you turned his character to a Muppet figure, you wouldn't really lose much in personality or looks-wise. The Muppetzoids? Yeah, I want a Muppet Star Trek movie now. Totally, yeah. God, I could see can that. I ju- can, I just, can I just mention, speaking of fan edits, um, just reminded me of something. Have you guys come across Star Trek Legacy? No. I have not. This is a 22-minute edit of uh, the motion picture by a guy called Patrick Collins, and it's on Vimeo, and it is set to the music from Tron Legacy by Daft Punk, and it is marvellous. It condenses this movie into 22 minutes of brilliance, and the music from that movie works incredibly well to this movie. So check that out. I love it. I I think I like it more than the film (laughs) itself, actually. It's called Star Trek Legacy? Star Trek Legacy, and you'll find it on Vimeo. I do have to say that the fan edit that I saw, it goes from, what is this, uh, like two hours and 10 minutes, and it cuts it down to 90 minutes. And it moves. You know, it really moves, and it gets the story told. They even do, like, commercial fade-outs, and the commercial fade-outs are at the perfect times as well. It's like, there's a good beat, and then, boom, we fade out, and then we come back in, and we're off to the races with the next bit. And I was very uh, happy with that. And I'm curious now to see it 
22 minute version of it because this tells the story with no cruft and really gets you there. I mean, the whole thing of like poor Chekhov getting wrecked. I mean, I didn't realize until I was thinking about it when I was, before I talked with Walter Koenig, I was like, my God, he gets hurt in almost every episode. And in all the movies, yeah. In Star Trek 2, he gets an earwig in his ear, then he gets put in a coma in Star Trek 4. <laughs> that scene in Star Trek 2 still gets me. That's, ugh. Anyway, but yeah, he, he gets his arm burned in this film. Right. And he was talking, it was supposed to be really intense. He was saying that originally they had a, like a butane line up his back and it was like butane. And then I think it was helium or something that would put out the flame immediately. So they had all this stuff rigged up and then they're like, Oh wait, no, we're not going to do that. We're just going to do this other prosthetic type of thing. The pain gets taken away by Aaliyah. And the doctors do the whole thing on his arm. Kind of gets the uh, short end of the stick in this film. He's the Kenny from South Park of Star Trek movies. <laughs> they, oh killed my God, they killed Kenny. <laughs> they killed Kenny. <laughs> I really want to see a frame by frame of all the stuff that goes on Spock's helmet. So at one point, V'ger as a beam of energy comes onto the ship and it starts to do the thing that we've seen a thousand times where it's going to read all of the things from the ship and will it take over the ship? We don't know if it's going to take over the ship, yada, yada, yada. We've seen that, like I said, so many times. And I was expecting like a real fifth element type of thing to be like, you guys are a bunch of warriors, bunch of, you know, shit bags, like that whole you know, the whole Gene Roddenberry thing of like, I have judged you. I have seen your history. I saw what you guys did to the Jews in World War II. This race cannot live. You carbon units are a scourge and you need to be eliminated. But no, instead, it doesn't seem to really get a whole lot. And then even when it steals Aliyah away and replaces her with a robot version, it's like, okay, it's still not doing that. And then when they show all the stuff on Spock's helmet, I was very curious, like, is this going to be all images of war or, you know, what is V'ger now spitting back out at Spock as he's trying to do the mind meld? I always forget about how different Nimoy plays that scene when he's back in sickbay and is really just admires what is going on with V'ger. This. Simple feeling is beyond Vedra's comprehension. No meaning, no hope, no answers. It's asking questions. What questions? Is this all that I am? Is there nothing more? I like what he's doing there, and I like that single tear that we see later on when they're getting closer to uh, the, the climax of the film. I mean, the spot walk sequence is, is fantastic. You know, it really is. It's so good. I think to your point about Ilea, though, and, you know, when she's taken over, it feels a little bit like the film doing another classic Star Trek trope, which is trying to have an alien being understand humanity through a character. So obviously that's Spock in the 60s to a degree. You have it with Data in The Next Generation. You have it with Odo in The Deep Space Nine. You have it with the Doctor, the holographic Doctor in Voyager. It just on and on and on and on. It, almost every Star Trek show has a character like that. And I think with Ilea, it's it's even it's even more acute because it's this intelligent. This isn't a a, be, a human being as such. It's an intelligent being trying to figure it out. So maybe that accounts for why it searches for Spock. You know, another being who is 
human, but not at the same time, and has the and you know increasingly Spock's power with his mind becomes more and more as time goes. I mean, in the end, he could literally host his entire brain in McCoy, <laughs> which we're literally just doing. Remember, yeah, with the Vulcan neck thing. Remember, you know, I mean, how he does that, I've no idea. So maybe that's Vija. Maybe Vija gave him the power to do that. I just assume that that's what this story in itself is trying to do, as opposed to come and wipe everybody out. It's trying to figure out who we are, which is ultimately what Star Trek is. Every every great episode of Star Trek is about humans, really. It's never about aliens. It's always about who are we now in that moment? Who, are, who have we become? Who are we going to be? It sort of gets a little bit muddled in the motion picture, I think. It gets a bit lost sometimes in the, in the, gob- in the technobabble. It's so distanced, as we've said. I don't think you feel it in the way you do with some of the better examples of this in characters like Spark or Data. And I think it works better on TV, if I'm honest. And that's why I think the movies become progressively more pulpy, action-adventure, fun, you know, kind of romps as time goes on. Because I think that's what you turn up for the, to the movies for. I'm not sure you turn up for uh, two hours of trying to understand the human condition with a, you know, a, robo- a robotic V'ger, you know. So it's commercialism versus philosophical intent with the motion picture, you know. Why do you think... 2001 succeeded where Star Trek failed. I think it was the the era, the time it was made, personally. You know, I think people were more, if you agree with this, Mike, but I think people were more receptive in the 60s to some of these ideas than maybe they would have been at the end of the 70s. You might might think differently, I don't know. You're being sold a bill of goods with Star Trek The Motion Picture that you didn't want to pay for. You were looking for those six, seven characters from the TV show that you watch when you were younger romping around the universe and having adventures and having like a little joke between Spock and Kirk and Bones at the end of it. And so you get into this and you're just like, wow, this is not what I wanted. That's what I see. And I I know that people have kind of come around to it. And there were probably people just like there were people with the Phantom Menace where they're just like, this was the best thing that I've ever seen. And they just kind of convinced themselves of that, as opposed to the People also that were like, I grew up with the Phantom Menace and that's why it's so good. Or the people that genuinely, and I don't get these people at all, genuinely go back and reevaluate and they go, no, actually, this was really good. I can see people reevaluating Star Trek, the motion picture and seeing a lot of stuff in it that they like. I can't see anybody saying this movie is flawless from beginning to end. <laughs> no, yeah, I would hope nobody yeah. says that. There might be some people out there that say there that. There will be. Yeah, there will be. Oh, and I'm sure the <laughs> comment section will have at least one or two of those. But we talked, Trevor, recently about Super Mario Brothers. Super Mario Brothers, it's an okay movie. You know, it's not a masterpiece. It's not Citizen Kane, but it's, you know, it's a decent movie. And I would say that this is a decent movie. There are a couple of things that are really clunky and there are a couple of things that actually work very well. And it's great seeing beloved characters, even though they're not quite the characters that you saw before. You talked about how so many of them are relegated to the background. Like, you know, we're going to hear from Walter Koenig in a few minutes. And yeah, he's barely in it. But I have to say, like, Walter, I know that you were upset about this stuff. But poor George Takei, it feels like he's got even less time than you do. Man, I, and I love Sulu. I love him. Of course, I love his voice. But poor guy, barely in this movie. Some of this came from the snobbery from the upper brass impairment as well, who actually didn't like the idea of of this to these TV actors being given this large-scale platform. Because, well, you know, the motion picture wasn't the first 
TV show to become a movie, it was perhaps, and I, I might be wrong in this, but it, it was perhaps the first franchise picture in that way that went from a successful TV show or a relatively successful TV show, not while airing, but as we've discussed in syndication, to a movie. And there still was that snobbery, you know, which only in the last, say, 10, 15 years has started to dissipate, frankly, between television and, since, well, probably since The Wire and The Sopranos, really, that started to change, you know. But back then... Especially in 43 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Back then, that there was a real difference in terms of the playgrounds of these things. And I think that's partly why... That happened, you know. Now, I think with the distance, I, I, I'm one of those people you described there, Mike, in terms of I, I really like this film and I like it the older I get, but I, I, no way is it a great movie. No way is it a flawless film. No way as a huge Star Trek fan can I honestly hands up say this is fan, this is the best Star Trek movie. It's just not. But I think with that distance, I can see things in it and, and take those, those things to enjoy. The things I enjoy is not what are in the spirit of Star Trek in the same way as both the series in the past and also the films to come, actually, after this, which do recapture that and do blend that with a different aesthetic because they're older. And, and you know, what I love about the Star Trek movies and why they're my favourite Star Trek movies, one to six, is that they lean into the fact these guys are middle-aged, you know. They don't shy away from that. Star Trek Two is all about ageing, all about generations i mean to to coin a phrase all about the difference between khan and the sins of the past revisiting you i love that i love that there's such a great theme in there and really saying these are older actors and they have to now deal with that deal with humanity deal with with their own mortality it's wonderful and this there isn't that theme it's just like there's a mission we have to do the mission this guy's a hot shot. I'm also a hot shot, but now I'm a little bit older, but I still want to be a hot shot. But there's no like, maybe I'm a little too old to be the hot shot. I don't know. I'm fucking Maverick. I'm going to do whatever I want. The only character I get that from, the aging thing, where they felt like they're older and felt like aging has taken a toll, was Bones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bones is the only one who yeah. feels like time has had an effect on him. He's not trying to be the bones of the 60s television series. He is a bones that is maybe not world weary, but definitely more experienced. Definitely time has had an effect on him. The world has had an effect on him and that shows with the other characters. You're right. It doesn't feel like anything's really different about them. Character wise. Kirk is still trying to be Kirk. Spock maybe is a little different than, than he is in the television series. Well, it would have been nice to get a little bit more of what these characters have been up to. And I know that that was thrown around a lot when it came to earlier versions of the script. Like, okay, we're going to go visit Starfleet headquarters and there's Jim Kirk and he's working behind a desk. And we're going to go to, and we get this, we're going to go to Vulcan. We're going to see what Spock's been up to. We're going to go back to Earth and we're going to see that Bones is now a veterinarian, question mark. And he's working on like, I think it was like a Jaguar or something like and he had, a, he had a daughter or something, hadn't he? He'd been married and had a daughter and stuff like that, I think. Have these characters have lives? Like, what's Chekhov been up to? What's Sulu been up to? What's Uhura been up to? What's Scotty been up to? Scotty, I mean, I can see Scotty being a lifer and just going around from ship to ship to ship and making improvements, coming up with ideas. Oh, yeah, you got your warp core manifold needs to do this and that and the other thing. But give me, like... I don't know, 10 minutes of that? I mean, we waste so much time with other stuff in this movie. Give me a little bit of that. Yeah, I mean, sacrifice some Enterprise footage for 
for some uh, character development. Um, I can live thing, with that. <laughs> one thing that surprised me about the film is that back in 79, it was rated G. Like, this is a G-rated film? This is what G-rated movies were like back in the 70s. I mean, it's Jaws was a PG film, man. You know, it's it's wild. Well, I mean, I didn't expect it to be like PG-13 or anything, but because PG-13 didn't happen to like 85, I want to say. Yeah, that was post uh, Temple of Doom and Gremlins. Yeah. Yeah, I also think I also think Poltergeist is one of the things that helped it. Though now they go back and they re-rate stuff. So there are times I will see things where it's like this is rated PG thirteen. I'm like, how can it be PG thirteen? Even wasn't even a thing when this movie came out. Yeah, it's reappraisals. Um, but yeah, like especially, but especially even for seventy nine, P- G is very very generous. But then again, like you said back then, those ratings meant a whole lot different. And we want everybody to see this movie. As much as they want everybody to see the film, it's not for everybody. Like I mentioned, like they made Happy Meals from this film when this isn't really a Happy Meal kind of film. Because Happy Meals are for children and Star Trek The Motion Picture I don't see as a film like you'd show to children. It's like children will be bored out of their skull watching this movie. Though I do have a lot of the Happy Meal toys from when they redid Star Trek, the J.J. Abrams version. I still have all those like little Zachary Quinto, Chris Pine, you know, and they you press the back and it's like, that's a logical captain. With BK Kids Meals, you can create your own space adventures with sound-making toys from the new Star Trek movie. One toy per kid's meal. Now with stars and bolt-shaped chicken tenders. Limited time only. Captain, we're being <laughs> BK Kids Meals. Now with Star Trek toys. That's more marketable. The J.J. Abrams films are a lot more marketable than the, than the Robert Wise 79 film. And it was a lot more fun, too. It was definitely a lot more fun. I don't really see toys being made out of this film or... Well, the toys in the Happy Meal, I think it was a communicator, and I think there was an iron-on for um, like your Starfleet uh, uh, logo, and I can't remember what else in there, but and maybe a board game? But yeah, I'll have to look that up to see what was actually inside of there. Because I don't remember if Star Trek was being marketed merchandise-wise back in 79. After Star Wars, you would think that they'd be like, oh, boy, this is a license to print money. So, yeah, even though they uh, were kind almost missed the boat when it came to Star Wars. I mean, this was a decade over a decade, I think, removed from 2001. Yeah, it was 10 years. Exactly. I think. And for something so inspired by a movie that 10 years ago, now that I think about it, it's like, OK, you're taking a film from 10 years ago and being inspired by that rather than anything more recent. Like, like I said earlier, I don't see a Star Wars influence when I watch the film. I see a Kubrick 2001 more cerebral influence than that. I think the fact Star Wars happened is probably one of the reasons why this happened, though. I think that's probably the uh, – because so, before Star Wars, science fiction was so minimal across the 70s, particularly in American cinema, you know, in terms of certainly bigger projects or projects that people were going to see. It didn't seem to – not in the way of Star Wars anyway. It wasn't really a thing. You know, it wasn't really as popular. Star Wars just exploded that outwards, you know, into a different realm. So then you have this, then you have, you know, Alien, then you have even Moonraker, you know, with Bunga into space, which was 79 as well. All of these were 79. So it's, it's, it's like the moment, the year after Star Wars, they all go, right, let's do it. So I think had Star Wars not happened, I don't know if you would have ever, you would have had this movie really given the green light. When it comes to science fiction in film, they've been more relegated to like B movie, Saturday matinee, double feature kind of films. 
it wasn't really taken seriously as a genre. I mean, then 2001 came along and it all kind of opened up the doors for science fiction to be really seen as something to be taken seriously rather than throwaway genre that you just like, oh, okay, well, let's waste a Saturday to watch this. I see this relating more to another 69 film, which was Planet of the Apes. You know, this is more that level of sci-fi for me, or at least I think that's where it kind of should have been, which is ironic because I want to say that there's a crossover between Planet of the Apes and Star Trek, which is called the uh, Primate Directive, which I thought was a really clever <laughs> title. I'd never heard of that. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I wish I could say that I made that up, but I couldn't. <laughs> So, guys, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to be back with an interview with the one and only Pavel Chekhov himself, Mr. Walter Koenig, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. At the edge of the universe, 400 men and women are probing the immeasurable blackness of space. Their leaders are an Earthman with no fear and a stranger with no heart travel beyond our time and solar system into new galaxies into worlds beyond your dreams star trek every week in color on the nbc television network here's an interview with the one and only pavel Chekhov himself mr walter koenig we started off by talking a little bit about how he was getting back into the world of star trek after a few years away originally i came in for wardrobe fitting for uh, what was going to be uh, a television series. That's what they brought us all in for. And I was pleased that I still uh, retained my original size and that they were happy that they wouldn't have to refit me. That was nice. And uh, I I did the the whole fitting, and it seemed like we were going to do a series. And I, I think I learned at that point that Leonard was not going to be in it. They were going to use another fellow. Uh, and I never did meet him, uh, although I do believe he made an appearance somewhere along the line. Uh, he was going to do another fellow as the Falcon. I got home, and I wasn't home an hour when I received a call saying that we were postponing the start date and that uh, we'd, we'd get back to you. This happened about three or four times. I mean, literally. We didn't know whether we were doing the television series. Then we heard it was going to be a movie. There was one curious factor that that involved me personally, and that is before this was... I don't know what the sequence of events was, because I really don't know what transpired behind closed doors. But I do know that Gene had submitted a screenplay and uh, the fellow who was running Paramount at the time, if you mentioned his name, I would remember, but I don't remember his name. He was he was a very religious Catholic fellow, and he felt there was too much to be inferred that this this was uh, we were talking about God, that the the principal character had something to do with God, and he, sh- he shut down the idea. At that point, Gene decided to write it as a novel. Oh, he got halfway through the novel when everybody congregated again and they discussed the concept of Eger. And I don't know the steps. I don't know in what order things happened. But I do know that Gene stopped writing the novel and started working on the screenplay. He learned from his secretary that I was a 
that I had some talent in the writing field, I would pay her to type up a screenplay that I had written. And she liked it enough to show it to Gene. And Gene liked it enough to call me and say he would like me to finish writing the novel. So I did. I wrote about 90 pages. The novel was based on his original screenplay. And uh, so when I was brought in, I was working off his original screenplay, and I did the last half of the of the novel. And, and he loved it. He called me and told me how, you know, how much he liked it. And then I never heard anything. <laughs> what, what, what had occurred was that it was in that time period when they revisited the idea of Star Trek the motion picture and, and involving V'ger. He paid me for it. My, my work was put to the side. It was never was never produced. I approached Majel years after and said, you know, I think this is publishable by Gene Roddenberry and Walter Koenig. When I said Gene Roddenberry, she said yes. And when I said Walter Koenig, she said no. I couldn't have my name on it. So that was the end of it. It never saw the light of day. Do I remember right that there was talk of you playing your own father at one point? When they were going to do the movie, it was going to take place three years before the five-year mission. This was already about nine years or ten years since we did this show. I was playing a character I was nine years older than to begin with. If I was going to be playing Pavel Chekhov. So it all add up to that I'd be playing a character that I was about 15 years older than. And Gene's thought was that it wouldn't work, and I certainly understood that. But he proposed, what do you think about playing Chekhov's father? And I said, yeah, okay. That was in the hopper for a little bit. And then they rewrote the concept, and they put it in a, in a time frame that made it possible to me to play my character as I as I had in the past. With that book that you helped write, was that pretty close to what we ended up seeing on screen, or were there some big differences? Uh, we didn't start with a, with a finished script. We started shooting, which is, you know, absolutely uh, unheard of. We started shooting with, with a script that didn't have an ending because we needed to get the film done and in movie theaters by a certain date. That was the contract Paramount had with the movie theaters. And it had to be there at a specific time, having to do, I think, with holidays. They just started shooting, and I don't know what transpired behind closed doors, but they decided, well, we'll figure it out. <laughs> we'll figure it out, you know, while we're shooting. And then, to compound the um, the problem, we ran into this whole thing with the special effects, which has been discussed ad nauseum. The company that had been hired was not able to fulfill their contract, was not able to to give us the effects that we needed. So we got to a point where we couldn't continue shooting. We, we didn't have the effects. And uh, we come in every morning, and after a week or two, they said, don't even dress. And we didn't, we didn't even dress and get into, co get into costume or, or even have the makeup done. And we'd sit around with coffee and bagels while Hal Livingston and Gene Roddenberry and John Povell? Yes. Sat down in an office somewhere with, with Joe Pedney and they discussed how they were going to, you know, continue this, this script and how they were going to finish it. 
And then there came a point where something kicked in from the contracts of Bill Shatner and Leonard Nimoy that gave them the right to the script approval. So they became part of the group that sat down. Now, bear in mind, you have two actors discussing how the script should go, and there's got to be some sense of self-preservation for their own uh, gain uh, as in, in their roles. So that just, that just um, complicated the issue, and we went on and on. I don't know if it was four weeks or five weeks or how many weeks. We just didn't shoot. We just came in, and what, was, what had been a five-week contract for the supporting actors, I don't know what it was for Bill Leonard and DeForest, became 16 weeks. Uh, I was on the film for 16 weeks, and it was a five-week contract. I actually made more money, even though uh, when we came back to do Star Trek II, it was obviously in a, a better initial deal. It did not match what, what I had made in Star Trek I. I it took, it took it to, I think, to Star Trek Three before I actually had uh, progressed in terms of the income. One thing I noticed rewatching the Star Trek films is that poor Pavel Chekhov, he gets wrecked quite often between V'ger and the electricity or the creatures that go in your ear or the stuff with the uh, the hospital in the fourth one. How was that being the guy who always gets injured? I thought it was great because it meant that I had, I had a little bit more to do. You know, every time that happened, they were focusing on my character. And I understood the reason. And the reason is, you know, I think I, I understood it at the time, but certainly I I understood it afterwards. It was that they needed to, to express this concern and jeopardy and that there was, you know, a threat in the story. And the, the most facile way to do that was to show uh, injury to one of the regulars. Now, it was least inappropriate to have the youngest member of the crew be the one who uh, is least able to deal with the agony that was presented. And so it was on that basis that each time, you know, that whether it was the, the torture booth and Mirror Mirror, or, or as you say, the, the movie or whatever, Spectre of the Gun, whatever, it would be least unacceptable to the audience and if the most vulnerable character was the one that was actually hurt. I, I do remember that when it came to doing Star Trek VI, Harv Benedict, you know, and some of this is conjecture, but I never spoke to Harv about it, but I think Harv got to the point where, you know, he rescued the franchise with Star Trek II. He had, a, he had an important hand in, in, in that, although I'll always maintain that Nick, it was Nick Myers' contribution uh, to the writing, which I don't even think he got credit for. He might have gotten some credit, but it was really his his story that that sold that story, that sold that picture. Bennett wanted to replace us all. Bennett wanted it to be a Harv Bennett motion picture, not a Gene Roddenberry offshoot. You know, so he came up with the idea of the Starfleet Academy, which would have meant that none of us would have been in it. He wanted to dispatch us all and start with a whole new group of actors, and I guess. It came down to drawing a line in the sand, someone giving someone an ultimatum, and Bennett got released as a consequence. Because the chap who was running Paramount at the time felt we had one more film in us. So that's why we were still there in Star Trek VI. 
Can you tell me a little bit about Star Trek Renegades and Star Trek Captain Pike? Because I'm unfamiliar with those. Well, Captain Pike, I can dispatch uh, with just a couple of sentences. It was an independent film concept, and I was approached to be in it and be a different character, because Chekhov wasn't in the, the pilot in which Captain Pike was in. So I would have been a different character, which, you know, I, I found appealing. I would, I would love to play a different character. But it fell by the roadside, as several uh, other independent projects did, when CBS, which at, at that juncture had taken over ownership of the, 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 the whole franchise, uh, they put out a cease and desist at all these independent projects that they were not giving you the license to do them. Uh, I mean, I didn't even hear it from the guy who was producing it. I heard it, you know, uh, in, uh, I saw it in a periodical, and nobody even approached me about the fact that we weren't going forward. But I knew immediately that that, that wasn't going to happen. Now, the, the 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 one that did happen, Sky Conway was the producer on. Sky was a friend of mine. We did two independent Star Trek films. Oh, I played play Chekhov in both of them. The first one was okay. It was uh, made for under a million, and it was an okay fan film. It wasn't a terrific film. The second one was pretty much a replication in, of the first in terms of the way they'd conceive it and shoot it. The very first thing we were in this, that same edict that killed Captain Pike came down about our film. At that juncture, the only thing that we did was to eliminate the characters' names. So I was the Admiral, playing a much older Chekhov, but still Chekhov. And Uhura was a commander or a captain or something, and we were just known by our rank and, and not by our names. And we just proceeded to make the movies. Again, it was a valiant effort. I think there could have been more craftsmanship involved all around. You know, the voted Star Trek fans embraced it completely. And it had a very good run on the internet and, and DVDs and et cetera. But it never got a theatrical release. What are you working on these days? I'm 85, you know. I'm, I'll, I'll, be 80, I'll be 86 in September. I have no significant physical problems at this point. However, I'm going to be 86. I get up, I get around. You can tell that I'm, I'm reasonably articulate. My father died at 62. My mother lived to 79. I don't know how long I'm going to be around. I did start a novel. I'm in about 75 pages of my novel. It has nothing to do with science fiction. I showed it to a, a very bright, very perceptive 35-year-old fellow who I know, who's a musician and a composer, and he gave me some very salient ideas and tips, and was relatively enthusiastic. I mean, if, if he told me you know, not to pursue it, I probably would have put it aside. I had done that once before when I was told not to pursue something. And in that case, it was probably uh, good advice. But this time, and this person was somewhat energetic. And it's a, I know that it's a good concept. It's a, a relatively novel way of approaching a story. I finished the first Four chapters. It's a story that goes back and forth in time. It involves serial killer, but it involves it from the point of view of the victims as well as the 
as, as the actual antagonist. You grow up through the story with the antagonist and with the protagonist. So you see them initially in flashbacks as they're young kids. And the story progresses with the victims and as the children, as the two young people mature, become older, and then ultimately are uh, involved in the death and the and the, uh, the victim and the capture of the at- antagonist. It's a very good story. For some reason, I mean, there's a lot going on in the story. I think it's, a, you know, it would interest people to read it. The problem is twofold. One, I'm not sure if, if the execution is as good as it should be. And number two, it seems to me, as I think about it, and I think about what needs to be done yet, that I can finish this in 50 pages, and then I'd have a 120-page story. And that's that's not a novel. <laughs> that's not long enough to be a novel. So I'm sometimes overwhelmed by the idea that I'm not, I don't have enough story, or I don't know how to tell the story in a way that would bring enough additional detail to it that would make it the length of a novel. Well, I sit down over three or four days and write three or four pages, and I think they're pretty good. But then I say, that makes me so much closer to the ending. <laughs> how am I going to, how am I going to, um, you know, prolong that process, keep the story interesting, entertaining, keep the audience stimulated, and, and not run into a book that is too short to publish? So that's, that's where I am now. Mr. Koenig, thank you so much for your time. It was such a pleasure talking with you, sir. Oh, my pleasure. Take care. All right, we are back, and we are talking about Star Trek The Motion Picture. I think I was about to say this a little bit earlier as far as, you know, is this everybody's favorite Star Trek movie? No. But I had a chance to see it on the big screen, well, back in 1990, and I went for it, or 91. I had a chance to see it on the big screen three years ago with uh, Trumbull introducing it, went to see it then. I missed the opportunity recently to see the Fathom release of this, and I really regret that because – so a little bit of a brief history with this one. This movie, it was released in 79. There was a lot of trouble when it came to the special effects. They had a release date before they had everything locked in, which is always a bad sign. So they were really just pushing, pushing, pushing. So the version that were released was not, let's say, the best thing in the entire galaxy. So a few years ago, probably more than a few years ago, there was an effort to redo and complete a lot of the special effects to tighten up the edits, to change some of the sound effects. Pretty much, I don't think anything was unscathed by this effort to do a director's cut of the film. Now the director's cut is pretty much the thing that you can get, but apparently this Fathom version is actually even more changed than the director's cut. So there's even more stuff out there, different shots. There was a nice um, article out on trekmovie.com that I'll link to in the, the show notes where they say like, okay, here's the original version, here's the director's cut, and here is what I imagine is going to be on the 4K Blu-ray when that comes out. And some of it is like, okay, well, that's kind of 
subtle there, like the uh, space station. Okay, I can kind of see some differences. Okay, they changed this explosion, and then other things, it's like, oh, well, that shot didn't even exist in the earlier version. This movie, I don't know if they'll ever be done futzing around with it, but I would have liked to have seen this new version on the big screen. Yeah, but unlike Star Wars, if they keep futzing around with the special effects, I don't think anyone's going to care. With Star Wars, fans throw a fit every time George Lucas changes something in the film, even though he's been doing that since 77 anyway. But with this film, people are more accepting of the changes rather than defensive. And this is a film that... If I had an opportunity to see it on the big screen, I would take it because, I mean, not to get into a whole debate about home viewing versus theater viewing, but sometimes a film needs to be seen on a huge screen to really appreciate the scope. Well, we talked about the scope of feature and you can't get that and you really can't get that from your TV screen, but you can start to get there from your movie theater. But I would love to have seen this in 70 millimeter with a eight track or whatever stereo system just in enveloping me into the into the visuals of the film people can be very forgiving of a lack of storyline if the visuals are good enough and the music is evocative enough and i think jerry goldsmith's score who is one of my favorite composers of all time really does that really is just and um like you mentioned aj it's he, he, he uses the original theme very sparingly. Like, I remember hearing it maybe once or twice throughout the whole motion picture. He mostly uses the whole da, 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 da. You know, the, the next generation. That's also known as the next generation. They, most people don't really think of it as the motion picture theme anymore. You want to hear that on a larger scale than your 32 inch, 60 whatever inch television you have at home. Even with the best LED or LCD um, technology. It's never going to match the, the 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 scope of a theater. I'd just like to see this new version at all because we we haven't we haven't been able to see it in the UK. Yeah, I was so disappointed I missed it because we get Paramount Plus on Wednesday finally in the UK, and I'm I'm t- yeah I'm told that it's going to be on there. Actually, I think it might be coming in the autumn, so we we haven't even a chance to see this new version at all, even on, on TV. I, would too, would love to see it on a, on a big screen. It does have the sound scope, and it does have those visuals. And that article, Mike, you referred to does show those differences. And it, you, you, it, really, it really is quite different in many of these examples on there. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to play like a different movie in some ways, I think. And these are just visual differences. I don't know about the soundtrack. And that's another thing. You, know, you, you mentioned the Jerry Goldsmith score, and we've talked a little bit about that. But the use of that electric guitar noise for V'ger, wow, that really works. And especially when Spock is on Vulcan and you get that noise and it's like, oh, okay, V'ger is talking with him. You don't need anything else other than that. And it's like, oh, okay. It's kind of, it's almost like the electric guitar from like Once Upon a Time in the West. It's like you hear the guitar before you ever see Henry Fonda. You just know after a while that that guitar is signaling your villain. And I love, I love musical motifs. And, you know, I mean, God, Goldsmith is one of the best at them. It also feels like it's everywhere. In those moments where you hear that guitar, it feels like V'ger is just constantly there and it's everywhere and it's enveloping you. It has a real echo and reverb around it as well, which is really immersive. And I think to hear that through massive booming speakers 
would be incredible. But it's how he manages to weave all of that into very traditional, rousing kind of, you know, tracks and, and, and motifs. Although originally he wanted to do it a bit more with bombast, I believe. Like he, he created something and, and I think Robert Wise said, I don't want that. I want you to maybe play it a little bit more lyrical. You know, I know obviously that opening, you know, start, main Star Trek theme is a very rousing chorus, but then the overture is a very lyrical, beautiful, you know, or Ilea's theme as it was otherwise known. Um, and I think he wanted a little bit more of that r- almost romance in there. That romantic, and that's what really surprises because even though the film is quite cold and sterile, the, a lot of the score isn't. A lot of the score is really lush and quite warm. And it's, it's almost, it's a contrast that shouldn't work, yet somehow it does. I think if you took that score away, this film would really not work at all. Like, I think it would, I think that score stitches quite a lot of this together in many ways. That's a testament to, to, to Goldsmith as a composer. He did that in so many movies, though, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Goldsmith is one of the very few composers who can do bombast without being overwhelming. He gets the message through. He gets the emotion through without being uh, manipulative or without overpowering you. He's a more subtle Williams, I guess. I, I think I should say. Like you said, AJ, it's not as bombastic as you think. There's like I noticed that last night. The score is not throwing like the Luke and Leia theme or the, or the main Star Wars theme or the, or the Imperial March at you. It's, it's very, very subtle, very beautiful. Considering the visually of the film, it kind of fits because like we've mentioned, it's not an action heavy film. If you're expecting to see fist fights with lizards or phasers, like you're not going to get that. You're going to get. But this is why it's funny how they had the Klingons in there though, even at the start, because the Klingons were like the big villains of the 60s. And they, I even heard that they wanted to cast, uh, cast uh, Tashira Mifune from um, uh, Seven Samurai as one of the Klingon, the Klingon captain. And you think, well, why didn't you do more with them? <laughs> you know, have them in there. They're kind of dispatched within like five minutes, I think. And then we don't get any until Star Trek Three, you know, the search for Spock. But it, and, but he creates the amazing Klingon theme. He creates the defining Klingon theme for the whole Star Trek franchise, which then is reprised in, it, Worf gets it in the end in First Contact, you know, and uh, it's it's amazing. Even though they're only in it for a couple of minutes, it's it's incredible what he does. And the, speaking of Klingons, the Birds of Prey look gorgeous. Oh, they in this look film. amazing. Yeah, they look yeah, incredible. They do. Yeah, I didn't realize with this whole revision thing, like there was that article I linked to you guys to. I didn't realize there was also a link to a Google photo repository. And I'm just scrolling through that right now. And they're doing like, here's the original. Here's the director's cut. Here's this new version. The one thing that we complained about forever ago was the overture. They bump up the star field. So now you can actually see because in the original, it's like almost black in the director's version yeah you can really kind of start to tell it's a star field but in this new one it's just like hey guys there's stars here you know this is there's something happening the projectionist didn't forget to turn it on somebody in the theater is going picture it's like those assholes that yell focus and it's like you know there's nobody up there right i i'm fine with that if you just tell me it's an overture don't don't send me a guessing game where i'm like two and a half three minutes of watching a star field with music wondering where the hell is it is is the is the credits out of frame? Like that's what I was wondering as I was watching the movie because I don't remember seeing that in the in the last time I watched the film, uh, probably a decade ago. 
when George Lucas starts to futz around with stuff, then people get angry. I get angry. But why I get angry is the original version isn't available. With this one, you can still find the theatrical version. You can, and like I said, the director's cut has almost supplanted the original version. It's a little tougher to find the original. And then pretty soon, with this 4K it's going to be this new version of it, but at least those other ones are still around. And it's not like they're saying those don't exist. That never happened. You know, like George is like this weird revisionary history, history guy and like trying to be a hypnotist. Like you never saw those earlier versions. There was always weird. Did I mind trick? Yeah. Weird creatures walking around in Mos Eisley. It feels a little bit odd that they're doing the motion picture in this way because it's not, it's not an anniversary as such for this. It, yeah, okay. It, Paramount Plus is is out. You know, he's he's fairly new on the block, and they want to, you know, make money off this and all that kind of thing. But it's not a beloved movie in a lot of the fandom. The Wrath of the Wrath of Khan was forty years old this summer, which is loved by everybody. Nick Meyer is still very much around, still working, still involved. Talks about this stuff a lot. You know, it's like if anything, why wouldn't you do something with that movie this year? As part of, which is much better, better well-known movie. It's a strange choice. It, 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 it's just, I don't quite get why I, I'm happy they've done it, but I don't understand why, especially with Robert, Robert Wise has long since passed away. So he's not involved in this. So it's a strange choice in some ways to do this. Yeah. I don't know why they chose now to do that with the motion picture, though they are doing anniversary screenings of, uh, Wrath of Khan this fall. I just, uh, just picked up my tickets for that. But yeah, you would expect like a 4K release of that one. Well, I think they were doing it just because it was a 4K release. Because sometimes they'll do that just because just because something is coming on 4K. That's when they'll decide to release in the theater to celebrate the release. Uh, it doesn't have, to have anything to do with an anniversary. But I think it's it's it makes more sense to release it, like you said, either on a, you know, 45th anniversary or 40th anniversary, you know. Not unlike 43 years. As far as messing around with this, the effects and stuff, like I said, I have no problem with that, what they're doing with this, because those earlier versions exist. I'm glad that the DVDs of the original Star Trek series exist, because when you watch those or watched them on Netflix, and now whenever you see them kind of just kicking around on Paramount+, Plus, it's the... Uh, new effects, which are to me wretched. I hate these new effects that they're doing. Like I watched the Doomsday Machine one last night, and the Doomsday Machine itself looks like this, you know, really shiny cannoli with like fire inside of it. And I'm like, what is going on? Why does it look this way? I want to see the original. Like, show me the warts and all. I didn't necessarily mind that. The Enterprise was going through a field with all of these asteroids because the planets had been destroyed by the Doomsday Machine. But after a while, I was just like, man, this this Enterprise looks really shiny. You know, like it does not look good enough. Like, show me the old one with the, you know, you can almost see the string on it. And I'm okay with that. And I think another reason it's 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 less uh, fan ire heavy is because they're they're not like adding cgi monsters or like things that aren't necessary they're just kind of improving what's already there rather than adding unnecessary stuff and that's what makes it more acceptable because if you're mad at them improving effects you're just being a hipster because it's it's kind of 
interesting in a kitschy way of like, you know, seeing how it was done back in the 70s. But it's not a problem if they just want to improve them and make them look a little better than they are. I just got called a hipster on my own show. I don't know what I'm going to do about that. Crap, I'm never coming back. Trevor's last appearance on the projection booth yeah. is a good one. Nice knowing you. Friends of the projection booth? Uh, yeah, don't look for that on uh, oh, on Facebook anymore. Yeah, sorry. I'm canceled, if you will. Um, <laughs> You're more canceled than Stephen Collins, baby. Well, I don't know if they could improve the effects. Is the helmet effects. Which helmet are you talking about? Kirk and Spock's helmets. I don't mind those that much. I thought you were talking about the football helmet that the security no, guys no, no, wear. No, 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 no. Okay. No, I was talking about the, like the obvious projected onto a – I mean, like I said, it didn't distract me from the film. It just was a little interesting to see considering how far we've come effects-wise. That's one area where they are still struggling looking at this um, – this photo gallery is the whole trip to the enterprise that Scotty and Kirk make that thing with the projecting inside of it. And it's hilarious. Like seeing all of the original films, save for six theatrically, we got to see how many times they reused shots in the movie. It was amazing to just see these shots over and over again. And this whole thing of like taking the shuttlecraft, I want to say that that is that shuttlecraft three or something, because they use that same shuttlecraft. And especially when the shuttlecraft joins up with the enterprise, they use that stuff a lot. It is everywhere i think oh sorry it's uh shuttlecraft five so that's the one that happens to get used a lot in these movies it's that's a bit it's a bit of a star trek thing isn't it you know it's the whole you know the other one is um explosions they love they they love to reuse an exploding ship especially especially a klingon ship they use it in tng they use it in generations it's great i mean they're nothing if not economical teach your phone companies to recycle it's good for the environment it's Star Trek. It's a, it was green before green, you know, so you kind of give it credit for that. I mean, when they reuse footage, it's not to the point of distraction. It's, it's still, you know, it still works in, in, in context. It's the rare time that I get to sit and watch all the movies in a row. So it was just very funny. We were laughing towards the end. It was like, Oh, here's shuttle, shuttlecraft five again. All right. Yeah. I mean, I think you'd notice it more watching them in succession rather than watching them. Um, like me, I probably wouldn't notice because I don't watch them as often as, as, as some people. I mean, I don't think I've watched the entire Star Trek film series. I think I've seen most of them. I think there's still a couple I need to, to, to catch up on. But yeah, like I told you, my first, my first Star Trek film was Star Trek four. That's a great one to start on. That seemed like more audience friendly. We agree. Wrath of Khan is a classic. It's it's, it's the best beautiful. one of them, if not one of the best movies ever made. Yeah. I think Star Trek four is more, uh, it's more audience friendly. It like it, it, it's, it's not just for Trek fans. It's for people who it's, it's for just casual moviegoers would appreciate it. And that you can't say that about the motion picture. <laughs> at all. No, you wander into that and you're just like, what the hell is this thing? All right, guys, let's go ahead. We're going to take our final break and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. In the near future, your genetic code will determine where you live, where you work, and who you love. I'm investigating an incident. Three people have died. I thought it might be her. Do you want to go out with me? The definite risk that you'll have at the time. She was a suspect. 
Yours? Yes. I knew you were guilty, and I fell in love with you. Every time I ever imagined this, I always imagined being with you. Some things in life can be what there is. Are you in love with this woman? Why? She violated Code 46. That is right, Sci-Fi July continues with a look at Michael Winterbottom's Code 46. Until then, I want to thank this week's guests, Trevor and AJ. So, Trevor, what is the latest with you, sir? Well, um, lately you can find me at uh, OnSegal.com with the OnSegal podcast, where we talk about everything Steven Seagal, uh, starting from his latest film, then to his earliest film, and then second latest, second earliest, and so on and so forth, with my co-host, Chris Stashew, friend of the show, Mike. Um, and, uh, you can also, uh, from time to time, find me on the culture cast with Chris Stashew. Um, and if you want to contact me, you can find me on Twitter at bad vertigo and, uh, yeah, that's what's going on with me. And AJ, how about yourself? Well, firstly, thanks for having me back, Mike. It's been great. It's been great fun. And, um, yeah, I can be found on, uh, Twitter at AJ Black Writer, um, where you'll find all my links to various things that I'm up to, podcast writing, books, etc., including my uh, Star Trek book, actually, that I wrote, Star Trek History and Us, which is available uh, from McFarlane Books, but also on Amazon.com. Um, and and a- any good bookshop, really, will be able to order it. And it's a cultural history of Star Trek, all the way from the 60s, all the way through to the uh, the 2020s, essentially, or the start of the 2020s. So uh, that that encompasses quite a lot of the things we've been talking about today, actually. Um, so I think if you've enjoyed some of the, the, the deeper sort of ideas in this that this conversation you might get something out of that book so that's star trek history and us thank you to anyone who does check that out um but uh all my writing and usual things are on www.culturalconversation.co.uk and uh, also one of my podcasts the new wave which is all about 70s cinema does feature well will feature trevor when I eventually get an episode, we've done a great episode um, about Martin Scorsese's Who's That Knocking at, at, at My Door. Um, that will be out soon. Um, I promise you, Trevor, that will be out soon because we recorded it ages ago. Yeah. <laughs> but it it's like come out really six, well. It was like last year, I think. Yeah, it was really long time ago, but it's. I'm waiting for it to be part of a new series. So uh, that will be coming soon as well. So that's a great listen. So uh, yeah, check me out with all those all those different places. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I've been working on, like The Shabby Detective, yet another Columbo podcast, Dreams for Sale, The Twilight Zone 85 podcast, The Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller, or Rankin on Bass. They are all available where finer podcasts can be found. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. There's a star beyond time Floating in space Waiting for you and me Though we're planets apart Love is the bridge Joining our guide
Don't 